Blog Talk Radio.
great-great-grandfather and your white-great-grandfather sold my great-grandfather and your white-grandfather raped my grandmother and your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? Good evening, America. This is your president. Please listen carefully to the announcement I'm about to make. After careful consideration and research, Vice President Duke, Congress, and myself have concluded that black people have not advanced technologically. Their educational testing scores are on a rapid decline. The vast majority of them are on welfare and producing babies at a faster rate than they can support them. And we will not carry them anymore. We are left with no other choice but to put slavery back into effect. All blacks will report to the designated camps in their area to receive further orders. The only blacks excused will be those serving in the United States military and the police. Any blacks who do not cooperate will be terminated immediately. I repeat, slavery is back in effect. We at war! That's what I told you. I know you heard what the president said, and if the nigga don't move, then he's dead. It's time for us to take the stand. Woman to woman and man to man. Blood rushes through your veins, you feel the fear. Who'd have thought that it could happen here? In the land of the free, home of the brave. The year is 95, you're a slave. When they first hear the news Press play and then rewind and review But the message is clear And it cuts just like the knife You don't surrender, they take your life And I remember some movies my mama used to show me Remember the times when they bought and they sold you We are That's what I told you That's what I told you Wicked! 
up, Howard. Paul, you conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard, you liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Paul, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> that makes it even worse. No, no, we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has any. He becomes alien to his brothers. They realize he's sold them out and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. That's no thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color, he's become one of us. Uh, it's you liberals who have lifted them up, Howard. Paul, you conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard, you liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Paul, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> that makes it even worse. No, no, we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has any. He becomes alien to his brothers. They realize he's sold them out and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. That's no thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color, he's become one of us. We welcome you to Africa on the Moon on the sixth day of August 2023. We will open up this program with an acknowledgement that on this particular day, something that happened that should never happen again. And that was in 1945, 14 million innocent Japanese lives were destroyed by the first atomic bomb dropped in Hiroshima. That's right, the first atomic bomb was dropped in, killed over 14 million people. And before we go any further, I would like to have a minute of silence in recognizing the millions of unnecessary lives that were lost due to the nature of capitalism. We thank you for your moment, Alan. This is Africa on the Move. This is Brother Africa. Like always, we're going to be in the seat and we're going to take the heat. As we design it, we're going to stand behind it. And we'd like to invite you to come and join us as we discuss part two, a critique of racial capitalism. That's right, we said we're going to discuss a critique of racial capitalism. But before we go down the road of liberation, like always, I first would like to introduce to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. First, we have Brother Haki 
a member of the African Awareness Association. Brother Haki, welcome to Africa on the Move. <clears throat> Brother Africa, uh, thanks for having me. My name is Haki Kamapi Nishoki, Carolina with African Awareness. <clears throat> and of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is all about institution building. But certainly, you know, in the context of institution building, there are certain realities we have to be uh, fundamentally aware of. And one of those instances is the question around asymmetrical warfare or low-intensive warfare enacted against the African community. <clears throat> now, if, and rather than go on in terms of, you know, some, you know, laying down a pretext in terms of leading to what I'm going to talk about, I'm just going to get right into um, the, the necessity in terms of this question around um, low-intensive warfare against the African community. Now, I recently reviewed a YouTube clip with an African elder with tears in his eyes asking the question, what's going on with our youth? Uh, contrasting African struggles in the U.S. throughout the ages, he put forth the proposition, do young people realize the war aligned against African people has not stopped? He then cites a litany of self-destructive behaviors embraced by many young people attesting to a clear lack of historical context. Among the self-destructive behaviors he enumerates are drug dealing, killing one another, and music lyrics that promote the debasement or humiliation of African people. While the elder narrative does underscore some very deep concerns, the onus of embracing values counterproductive to African survival in capitalist America is not solely the domain of African youth. In the judicial realm, Justice Clarence Thomas has consistently authored law that disadvantages African people. In his latest ruling under Jones v. Hendricks, Thomas upended a long-held precedent that says if legislations do not define a particular act criminal, it is not a crime. Thomas' rulings ensures innocent people, disproportionately African, must, re- must remain in prison regardless of their innocence without a way to c- contest their innocence via appeals. And Thomas is hardly a youth. <clears throat> now, the fundamental understanding of use of U.S. institutions' asymmetric warfare on African people has been declining in the minds of many Africans, in no small part, owing to strategic strategy and tactic by the state that conditions many African people to believe the capitalist value system is the only system worthy of emulation. As many, as many of us internalize this value system, <coughs> the emergence of self-destructive behaviors manifest in what we do and say. Values like crash individualism, materialism over human life, exploitation as a way of life, becomes the embodiment of our actions and devastating impact to social cohesion of the African community and our ability to, to transfer vital survival skills and information to succeeding generations. Now, implicit in embracing capitalist values, the definitive role domination plays in shaping society augments a predatory disposition that renders rationality hollow. This is particularly the case when viewed through the prism of manhood in U.S. society. Manhood in U.S. community has taken on a unique transformation. Historically, manhood entailed resistant exploitation by remaining woke and the realization Working together is to desire goal to blunt negative impacts of state propaganda geared toward the continued exploitation of African people. This desire goal to forge an awareness has been replaced by a definition of manhood that elevates pursuit of individual objectives at the expense of social cohesion, which is prerequisite for, for the possibility of social advancement or longevity. <laughs> manhood among some youth currently is defined as rugged individual, which means the ends justify them. The means just about the ends. 
This embrace is newly, of newly poor manhood is not without paradox. Real men are now defined as those wreaking havoc on the community through illicit criminal activity, while at the same time deeming those in opposition to self behaviors as soft. Such beliefs lie squarely in, <clears throat> within the norms or values of capitalist society, and it's a perfect testimony to the psychological dimensions of asymmetric warfare against the African community in context. Now, the asymmetrical war against African people is long and sorted. Most recently in contemporary history, President Nixon between 69 and 1970 initiated the Philadelphia Plan. The plan on paper was to increase employment opportunity for Africans by tying government contracts to hiring practices of contractors and unions. While the intent of the plan was never, never to decrease discrimination in the workplace, <clears throat> the, nefarious, the nefarious underlying strategy was to create the perception of inclusive hiring practices while facilitating class uh, stratification in the African community. By highlighting access to jobs by a token few Africans, the media framed the narrative which implied employment opportunities for Africans were plentiful with a little drive and determination employment was possible. Even though construction businesses and unions opposed the plan, the federal government agreed. Working from behind the scene, the federal government sabotaged the plan, <clears throat> achieving desired results. Propaganda ensued, blaming African unemployment on the inaptitude of irresponsibility of African people. Did many African people agree with such a view, uh, support such a view? Unfortunately, many did. Recently, now recently, the Supreme Court rolled back affirmative action, an asymmetric warfare strategy <clears throat> that goes, this strategy underscores the level of which Africans are seen as an intended target. In order to corroborate this brief history of affirmative action, it must be, it must be expounded upon. Affirmative action, as, per, as, as determined by President Kennedy, understood it was to increase investments in historical black colleges and universities. Seven years later, after implementation of affirmative action by the 1970s, white academic leaders and foundations began to oppose increased funding for historical black colleges and universities and instead promoted qualified Africans or, F or other ethnicities and white women have access to major universities. The reason for the strategy move was simple. Investments in the historical black colleges and universities made HBCUs, or historical black colleges and universities, more competitive in terms of hiring best staff and access to latest technology. Reasoning being, control of education by white male elites could best be facilitated by ensuring competition <coughs> would be eliminated and at the same time enhance class stratification in the African community by highlighting achievement of black graduates of major universities. And while, this was a widely effective strategy. Conveying the benefits of working within the system often was overthrown by real polity in the name of Donald Trump, who advocated an end to pretending the war of African people does not exist, embrace the war on African people in a transparent manner, without result, result to, to result in investments to deceive. Ironically, the same strategy and you know, philosophy that legitimized lack of investment in grade schools 1 through 12 routinely underfunded public education by $2,100 per student compared to suburban schools and $4,000 less compared to rural schools. Coincidence? Certainly not. Funding is orchestrated specifically to shape educational outcomes where African and ethnic children are systematically disadvantaged. Why would the U.S. educational system disadvantage its own citizens? You know, the only response has to be the well-being does not serve capitalist interests. Now, back to Trump in terms of his forming war against the African community. Now, being the close to the comment, Trump did not totally dispense with deception. 
instead covertly limiting higher education funding for African universities. Instead, the $300 million allocated to 107 HBCUs will be reduced to $85 million under the TRIO plan. This amount under Trump's administration for three consecutive years will reduce gravely impacted HBCU's budgets request. Now, the most obvious question is, why is this relevant? HBCUs collectively have endorsements of just $2 billion. The top four major education institutions alone average $32 billion, with Harvard over $48 billion. As major institution endowments increase yearly, federal and or state investments in declining HBCUs. Now, in, in military terms, the ability of those under fire to resist aggression through challenging the system has been gravely weakened. Like any adversary, the intent is to totally vanquish your foe. In an era of declining capitalism, destruction of enemies is not only strategic, but imperative. And how that destruction is carried out is not always standard military operations. Africans must heed the warnings while, while surveying elite strategy to destabilize the African community. Because if we don't, then ultimately we pay the, the, supreme, price, the supreme price. And with that, Brother Africa, I'll conclude. <coughs> Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll make our transition to Brother Anthony. He's a member of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, and we would like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome, Brother Anthony. Thanks for having me. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objectivist Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, which is the ultimate solution to the problems we're facing worldwide. Thank you, Brother Anthony. From Brother Anthony, we will go to Brother Moses. He's a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in support of the Cuban Revolution. Welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao's clay tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I bear witness that women hold up half the sky. Therefore, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And the struggle continues to be to unite the many to defeat the few. And I'm, I'm for scientific socialism that was the father of scientific socialism, theoretically, was Karl Marx, and it was advanced by Engels, Frederick Engels, and then on with Lenin, V.I. Lenin, who advanced it and with the Soviet Union, and J.V. Stalin, who continued it with the war against the fascist forces, and then Mao Zedong, who ultimately triumphed over the social Soviet, socialist, Soviet socialist imperialist system and created the illustrious People's Republic of China. And I'm, I'm in 
the scientific social that's practiced by these people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we will go through Sister Eleanor, who is also a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in support of the Cuban Revolution. Welcome, Sister Eleanor, to Africa on the move. Good evening, Brother Africa, fellow panelists, and to our listening audience in the United States and abroad. Uh, My name is Eleanor Johnson. I am an artist, an environmentalist, and a human rights activist. I've spent some years being an educator. You know, when I listen to Brother Haki um, and Brother Anthony and Brother Moses, it brought me to think of W.D. Du Bois. And to this day, he is, when people examine race, and how race is handled using the U.S. as a prototype. Um, They follow W.D. Du Bois as Marcus Garvey did. And we really need to look right now today at these things. And when we're talking about organizing a socialist government, we can start right now with organizing a nurses' union. Back in the 70s, there was a very strong union for nurses. Now you see that nurses are complaining to uh, patients, and um, the patients are, you know, uh, pitted against the nurses as that's how they feel and vice versa. But the reality is they fail to look at the big bosses, um, for example, uh, a group like Encompass Health, formerly known as Southern Health, had 157 rehabilitation hospitals throughout the United States, 37 states as a matter of fact. And they've added a new uh, pearl to their crown in Prince George's County, Maryland. And what this means is that what they do is they infiltrate uh, medical deserts. For example, at one point, they were the only rehabilitation hospital in the city of Albuquerque in New Mexico. Uh, They also occupy Florida, numerous states where, you know, access to uh, rehabilitative services acute are very limited for the working class, for the people on Medicare, Medicaid, you know, on certain type of group health plans, whether it's Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Travelers, or the like. But what happens is the workers are not organized. They're not a part of a union. They talk about their day-to-day struggles on the job, but they fail to look at Southern Health, or now as it is called, Encompass Health, and to negotiate with the CEOs and the bosses of Encompass Health. These people are may not be doctors or nurses, but they are one thing. They're people that earn eight-figure salaries operating 158 rehabilitation hospitals throughout the United States. Well, if the workers were to get together and organize 
form a union to start right where they stand in PG County while they're getting hired and getting on board. The facility in PG County opened in May of 2023. It began receiving patients in June on June 14th in 2023. There's no union. There's no shop steward. There is no one negotiating for the nurses, the techs, collectively. This is where workers gain power. This is how we begin to change the paradigm community uh, by looking at places like Encompass Health, that is uh, headquartered in Alabama, and come up with workable solutions for workers instead of pitting one group of workers, ergo the patients, against another group of workers, the nurses. And I just wanted to do a little editorial on this evening on that subject because it is an idea that we can pick up right now in our local community and begin to make a difference. While this facility is up and getting off its feet, we should start with a union organizer coming in and helping the workers grow their skills and understand the importance of being organized labor. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and I look forward to another exciting show. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. We now will make our transition to Brother Subukwe, who's a member of the PRSP, which stands for Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party. We'd like to welcome our Brother Subukwe to Africa on the move. Welcome, Brother Subukwe. Can you hear me, Brother Subukwe? Oh, six, seven, three. Oh, six, seven, three. It's a Kevlar. Oh, brother Kevlar, my mistake. How you doing, my brother? Would you like I'm to just introduce listening. yourself? To yeah, I'm right just brother Kevlar. I'm just listening. Well, okay, I, 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 I got something to say, I'll say. I'm just listening right now. All right, please hit number one. Thank you, brother Kevlar. You're listening to Africa on the Moon. What we're going to do right now, we're going to um, pause for the calls, take a revolutionary culture break. And when we come back, we're going to get our panelists to respond to the significant event that took place in 1945, the first atomic dropping bomb, a bomb dropping in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And then we're going to discuss two particular articles of interest. Uh, one is dealing with the West versus the majority, and the other one dealing with this question, what's going on in sports and on the university? But first and foremost, when we come back, Brother Haki would make a, would give a tribute to one of our famous playwright, playwright professors, out of Kenya, who just made a transition. So that's going to be the order of our deal, what's going on in that world community when we come back. And we invite you to call in and share with us what's going on in your world community. We return from this particular station break. 
You're listening to Brother Africa, and this is Africa on the Move.
transition like always to what's going on in your world and community and before we do that we would like to share this important information on when you have true revolutionaries when you have true people who have sacrificed their lives to make a better future for all mankind particularly if they are intellectual and they come from the African community. We should know our people contribution. So what we're going to do right now is ask Brother Haki to come in and to read a eulogy or a little um, summary of the life and history of a dear sister who was a Kenyan playwright professor. And she did to get to the age 81. And she just recently made a transition, but just share a little bit of history of this sister and her contribution and show our appreciation. 
where our sister, this article was written in the British Paper News on July the 3rd, 2023. Brother Haki, can you read the title and read the article as it relates to our brilliant playwright and professor, Freedom Fighter Sister. Brother Haki, we'll turn the mic over to you now. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. The eminent Kenyan playwright, poet, and literary critic, Professor Masheri Yitte Mungo, has passed at the age of 81. She died on June 30th, 2023. Now, according to a Kenyan public television, she died of cancer. Her past comes as a shock and is a tremendous loss to the African literary community. Now, Professor Mungo's work is instrumental in shaping African literature and politics. Her contributions to African drama and feminist thought is significant. Her writing centered a traditional African, pan-African, and feminist perspective and drew upon indigenous African cultural traditions. Professor Mungo's life and work continues to inspire so many of us today. Now, Professor Mungo was born in 1942 in Bariko, Kariyaga District in Kenya to two progressive teachers who were politically active in Kenya's fight for independence. She attended Alliance Girls High School, where she became one of the first black students to be allowed to enroll in the academy. Professor Mungo received her BA, BA, her bachelor's at Makarele University in 1966, her master's at the University of New Brunswick in 1973, her PhD at the University of Toronto in 1978. She began teaching at the University of Nairobi in 1973, where she became the first female dean in Kenya a few years later. She also taught at the University of Zimbabwe. Besides her academic career, Professor Mungo was a staunch political activist who fought against human rights abuses in Kenya. However, in 1982, Professor Mungo and her two young daughters were forced to depart Kenya after she became a target of government harassment during the attempted coup of Daniel Arap Moore. Mungo's Kenyan citizenship was taken away. Thankfully, she was given Zimbabwean citizenship and left Kenya. The East African Standard, a local newspaper, listed her as one of the most 100 influential people in Kenya in the year 2002. Professor Mungo's publications include six books, a play co-authored by Ngugi Wabiago, and three monograms, monographs. Some of her acclaimed works include The Trial of Dedan Kamathi, co-authored with Ngugi Wabiago, My Mother's Song, and other poems, and The Imperative of Utu, or Mbutu, in African scholarship. The Trial of Dedan Kamathi is one of the most influential plays in the 20th century in African literature tradition. Now, in some of her recent work, she continued to explore African indigenous knowledge or ideas about ethical ways of centering the human as a form of, of thought. In a recent lecture titled, Decolonizing Scholarship, Excavating Indigenous Sites of Knowledge Using Utu as a theoretical Framework, she proposed the idea of Utu or Mbutu, which means the essence of being human. Utu is how we assert our humanity and affirm the humanity of others. She called on scholars to excavate indigenous knowledge such as oriculture, literature, and film, which has been violently replaced by colonial educational systems. During her, la- her later years, Professor Mungo was a foremost literary critic and professor of literature in the Department of African American Studies at Syracuse University. She was the founder and president of the Pan-African Community of Central New York, where she initiated volunteer programs in two state prisons. Professor Mungos received the Lifetime Achievement Award in African Literature by the Royal African Society 
in the year 2021, a well-deserved prize for all her endeavors throughout the decade. We were deeply, we were deeply saddened by the news of her passing. We extend our, our, our heartfelt condolences to her family and friends, and above all, we celebrate her life as she joins the ancestors. May her, may her soul rest in peace. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Any personal thoughts you like can relate to the work of the professor, Brother Haki? Yeah, I, I think you know you you, you got to give <coughs> oh, excuse me, you got to give kudos kudos to um, her, her her perseverance. Given the fact she came out of a very difficult time, I mean we talk about time in in in, 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 in you know in schools where uh, the legacy that was established by the first president Jomo Kenyatta wasn't necessarily the most progressive uh, 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 progressive example in terms of revolutionary theory that that that, that existed at the time. Uh, we understand historically that uh, Joe Kenyatta uh, acquiesced to a lot of colonial policies uh, to the extent uh, that they were very detrimental to the aspirations of the investment of the Kenyan society. So she came along at a time in which, you know, given that reality, you know, she had to, the both of us to stand up and say that, listen, enough is enough. And it's time that we take a serious look at the educational system in terms of what we're actually teaching our, our youth. I think, given the fact that she's willing to do that as a woman, you know, in a, in a society at a point of the particular, uh, particularly conservative, given the fact that at that time she was able as a woman to articulate, to take a stand against those things that are fundamentally at odds in terms of the advancing of, 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 of Kenyan society or African society generally, I think it's a noble, com- it's, it's a huge com- accomplishment. And I think that the fact that she did that has to be acknowledged and it has to be respected. And so certainly, you know, her voice, you know, what she stood for and, and, and the gifts that she gave to the world certainly will be missed. And uh, so we owe that to the sister in terms of you know, acknowledging, you know, the great things she's done, the great works, and hopefully to inspire others to follow in a similar suit in terms of, you know, bringing forth those kind of attributes which are in the interest, you know, of African longevity, uh, African autonomy, and African survival. And I close it up with Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, your thoughts on Professor Mungo? Yes. Uh, my, my condolences on, on her uh, transition. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, given what our life expectancy is worldwide, anytime uh, you live to be 81 years of age, uh, you know, it's an accomplishment in and of itself. And uh, she contributed so much with her ability uh, to uh, uh, to uh, uh, literature and the sciences. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I... Um, I, I, I did not uh, get a chance to know of her personally, but um, you know, uh, in spite of that, her uh, her, her, her life's achievement are a mirror for other African sisters to live up to. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, your thoughts on the professor. And my man, Brother Moses, your thoughts on the professor? Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm. As Brother Anthony said, um, I didn't know her personally. Uh, uh, in terms of the, my uh, struggles and 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 knowledge of the struggle, 
Um, and it's good that somebody uh, acknowledged her because obviously from from the biography that it was read, she has contributed to the struggle, and the just struggles of the people naturally support one another. So you know, she will live down in history as a as a beacon of light in a world of darkness. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, and going to Sister Eleanor. Your response, Sister Eleanor. Are you there, Sister Eleanor? Okay, we're going to have to come back later. This is Sister Eleanor, what we're going to do right now, panelists. As we open up this program today, we talk about a significant event that took place in 1945 where 14 million innocent Japanese lives were destroyed by the first atomic bomb. It was dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I just would like to give y'all a couple minutes for each one of y'all to reflect on the significance of this particular event and maybe how can we prevent it from the future. Your response, Brother Haki. Yeah, you know, one one of the things is that, you know, when we go back and we look at that uh, fateful day, uh, you know, um, um, you know, um, where you know, so many, so many people lost their lives. We understand it was the, it was primarily the result of, 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 of strategy uh, that didn't take in regard to the, the humanity of the people living in Japan at the time. Uh, one of the things interesting is that it's been historically demonstrated over and over again. There was this, this focus on terms of testing, testing this, techno, this new technology out. And so therefore the Japanese people were perfect in terms of testing this new technology out. Of course, the, the, the threats that uh, a lot of historians uh, uh, pose in terms of Jap- in terms of Japanese uh, potential in terms of being a threat to the U.S. Uh, was debunked many, many times over. In fact, the use of the atomic weapon had nothing to do in terms of potential threat emanating from the Japanese, uh, imperial Japanese uh, military. It had more to do in terms of U.S. one, uh, uh, xenophobia, and also is the willingness to use this new technology to see how effective it was in terms of actually killing people. And it was quite effective in terms of killing people. In fact, even today, birth effects are still common in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, even today as we speak. So one of the things that I got to say that I'm a little bit disenchanted about is that when we, we look in terms of recent celebrations in Japan honoring the, the, the survivors and those who were killed during Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the government made a, a conscious decision not to evoke the deaths of so many people who were killed at the hands of this nuclear, nuclear uh, munitions. And the mere fact that the government took, a, took upon itself to dismiss or not to invoke the destruction that was that visited Japan at that point in history, I think is ironic. I think to, to a certain point, I think this desire in terms of, you know, being affiliated with the West is so strong among the Japanese leadership that they're willing to overlook any kind of atrocity uh, to the, as long as the perception is that, you know, overlooking that atrocity somehow leads to uh, a, a meaningful relationship to the West, which means, inevitably, when you think about this refusal in terms to acknowledge the devastation of such, a, of such, a, of such an attack, when you refuse to acknowledge that, in essentially what you do is leave the door open for more attacks to take place in the future. And so for Japanese leadership, not to mention the atrocities that occurred to Japanese people, or to me, and as you know, a little bit about Africa, I think speaks to, speaks to 
this improves mindset that exists among many in, on, among, in, among Japanese leadership uh, in terms of this propensity in terms of control at all costs. So clearly in that context of Africa, we, we got to conclude, at least realize, you know, the potential of this can happen again is, 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 is not a thing of the past. We can, in fact, when we look at artificial intelligence and we look in terms of incorporation of artificial intelligence and nuclear armory, armory, and nuclear and nuclear uh, weaponry, then clearly we see the potential in terms of this kind of thing happen again in the future. Uh, so clearly, brother, in terms of preventing this kind of thing from happening again, it only occurred to the extent that the mass of the people around the world are united and, and working in harmony in terms of uh, a nuclear disarmament of all countries you know, throughout the world. Of course, we understand the context of America, it's going to be a very difficult challenge, but one of the things that we're very cognizant of is that as our capitalism decline, one of the things that the U.S. Uh, uh, elites depend on, certainly the U.S. The US military depends on, is the ability in terms of threatening the world with nuclear armature, uh, or nuclear weaponry. And so therefore, they're not willing to give up that nuclear weaponry uh, freely. So clearly, so humanity got its work cut out for us, but it's incumbent upon all of us to work together for a nuclear-free world because without that, the potential is that it's going to happen again. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Let's go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, on 1945, on this day, the first atomic bomb was dropped over the Far East. What's your reaction, your reflection, as you think about that particular event that took place? Um, I commiserate with, uh, with, with the Japanese that lost their lives during that, that bombing. But they were not the only victims of the atomic bomb dropped. Uh, the uranium that was used in that uh, A-bomb came out of the Congo. A lot of people don't remember that. But those, uh, but those miners were victims also because they, uh, they, uh, they mined without any uh, any sort of protection and um you know so uh uh their lives and the, and the lives of their families suffered immensely as a result of uh, 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 uh of the, uh, of this act of warfare and uh we have to work harder to prevent it from happening again, and uh, the only way the only way we can do that is through permanent organization uh, to eliminate uh, the exploitation of one human being by another by all means necessary. Thank you, Brother Daphne, Brother Moses. Moses, the dropping of the bomb in 1945, your reflection. Thank you, Brother Africa. The past can only serve the present and the future, and we have to learn from the past. And what we learn is that chauvinism, the U.S. chauvinist, racist regime, um, the military-industrial complex, the, the war machine created a weapon of mass destruction and used it unnecessarily just to, just to show its might and uh, and terrorize the world into its trying to police the world and subject the world to its 
is policing. And, um, you know, I've, I've been supporting the physicians for social responsibility uh, since around 1978 or so. Um, and, you know, we're for total disarmament and uh, the the existence of nuclear weapons, it's the existential itself, just the very existence. And so we need to get rid of these weapons of mass destruction. And, uh, and uh, the U.S. is, you know, this re- regime, we need regime change. Uh, we need a, a revolution in order to really carry out the, the protection of humanity from these weapons because we can't trust the regime that's in power now. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. I'm going to check and see if you got Sister Eleanor back. Sister Eleanor, can you hear my voice? Yes. Uh, yes, I don't know. Yes, sure. yes I'm... Briefly, can you your thoughts on dropping of the bomb in 1945? Well, the dropping of the bomb in 1945 on August 5th, was uh, the B-29 bomber that was renamed the Enola Gay after the uh, pilot uh, who, who, who flew it that day after his mother. And they painted the name on the tip of the plane that day. And uh, it, when you think of Robert A. Lewis, uh, and, and thinking this was some type of tribute to his mother, it, it really shows you what World War II was about. The Japanese kamikazes gave their life in their flight, but we come along with a several hundred pound bomb, a 6,300-pound bomb that we dropped on the people of Hiroshima and then uh, a couple of days later, Nakasaki. And I had, I, along with many people around the world, have stood up and continued to stand uh, for the complete disarmament of all nuclear arms for the elimination of nuclear energy, uh, both for domestic use as well as military use. And it is uh, a frightening thing that suddenly a movie has come out that in one weekend they allege made $85 million glamorifying, getting, making it glamorous to have killed the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I believe these people deserve reparations uh, for the attack on the city. Uh, these Boeing B-29s, I don't know if they're still used today. They were horrific and uh, it uh, was an atrocity where the U.S. thought they were racing 
against the Germans to develop this type of weaponry. And what we were doing was creating weapons of, quote, mass destruction, end quote, in 1945, on August 5th, 1945. I don't have much to say other than the what Brother Robert and Brother Anthony and Brother Haiti. I concur with their comments. I can only say that it was an atrocity, and they began their early bombings in July of that year. And uh, this, uh, I believe it began uh, on July 24th, and uh, July 26th, and then another bombing on July 31st. But they were not atomic bombs, but they were still weapons of mass destruction. And uh, uh, the weapon dropping the bomb was uh, Unit L6, which was a complete bomb lacking, you know, that was the bomb that lacked the military, lacked the uranium. And uh, it was interesting. I did not know the origin of the uranium. I didn't know whether it was from New Mexico, where the United States of America has so much of its uh, nuclear research, and uh, or I did not know the uranium was actually mined in Africa and what happened to the miners and the impact of being exposed to uranium and what safety precautions were taken to um, protect them. Uh, they, the attack on Hiroshima on August 1st I, I thought that happened on August 1st. Uh, I think it's just out of North. Well, and on August 4th, the date was set two days. And again, as you said, Brother Africa, um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Paul W. Tibbs, uh, the 509th commander, selected B-29, the B-29 bomber, number 82, for the mission. And as I said, he renamed the plane Enola Gay after his mother over the objection of his pilot, who at that time was Robert K. Little. And the one thing about it is that they had Africans then that were, quote, participating in that bombing and the cost of that plane is $19,783,000. Thank you so much. And uh, um, we should definitely have a moment. The moment of silence was definitely greatly needed for the people who lost their lives it's just uh, thank you. That's all I can say. It's, it's, we need thank to you, Sister Alan. Thank you. All nuclear weapons. Thank you. You know, panelists, 
it seems that the West and particularly the U.S. never learn from their behavior when it comes to nuclear. It was understood at the time when they made the decision to drop the bomb, they had no idea of what the implication would be for the whole world. They had no idea. And looking at their behavior, look like they didn't give a darn one way or another. I'd like to raise something that's very similar to what they did in 45 to what they are encouraging today. And, Brother Haki, I had a brief discussion with you, and you said something earlier during the week about reading something about how the U.S. is encouraging um, Japan to allow their warships to release radiation, nuclear radiation, out in the ocean. And the implication that may have not only in that area but throughout the whole world, and particularly how it may affect certain communities. Can you elaborate or articulate a little bit more with, to our listening audience on that recent phenomena, Brother Haki? Yeah. Uh, you know, um, one of the things, you know, when you talk about the release, you know, of that, those atomic bombs and the devastation that came with it, uh, you think about the kind of indifference to human life, which is pretty much part in terms of U.S. Uh, uh, national, national strategy. It's very, very interesting in the, in, the, in the context of, you know, um, nuclear power plants. We talk about the creation of, you know, nuclear wastewater, you know, when we have these, these, these facilities in which with these atomic cores which are cooled by water. Well, of course, now water cools these atomic, these atomic cores, but that water becomes uh, radioactive. Now, recently, uh, uh, um, Japan, with the consent of the uh, Nuclear uh, Regulatory Commission here in America, Agreed that the the, the 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 release of the nuclear waste water into the Pacific was justified and correct, and it seems to me that when you think about the fact that it was it was it recently was revealed that the the level of radiation uh, of Celsius one eighty, uh, the level of that radiation far exceeded what they had expected, and when they look at the examining the fish, uh, the radiation was off the scales. And so when you think about this, this propensity in terms of uh, 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 in terms of the marketplace, when you think in terms of you know all these fish are you know being polluted, the bottom line is when we think in the context of the marketplace and thinking that these fish have to be sold, one of the things we were very clear on historically when you have these kind of incidents that happen where, where food is, is, is negatively impacted, whether it be radiation or whatever, that often these foodstuffs find themselves in poor neighborhoods, and that's ironic. But the mere fact that what is what is what is circum what is sacrosanct is the ability to make profit at all costs uh, speaks to just how indifferent this capitalist society, America in particular, is to uh, to 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 humanity to human to hum, to human to humanity. And so this indifference to humanity uh, manifests itself across the board. And so I think that you know you know and, and here's the thing. That even after it was discovered that these these fish had a normal amount of Celsius 180, you know, radiation in the fish, uh, Japan was given okay to release these even more radioactive water into the Pacific, and so the implication for poor people around the around the around the world, particularly poor people in America, particularly the African community in America, one of the things that we got to understand, given the marketplace, the reality is that there's an all likelihood. Those fish will be sold at a relatively cheaper prices because they're coming out of Japan, and uh, people 
and have the opportunity to make immense profits because they're going to buy those fish at a very cheap price and they're going to sell them at, a, at, a, at an enhanced price to poor people around the country. So we think about this indifference of human beings. You know, we cannot discount, you know, when we look at capitalism, and this is what Pence says, terms of indifference for human life, we cannot, we, we cannot underscore enough, you know, just how insane these policies are and just how insane, you know, people who embrace these kind of ideas are. And so given that reality, I think people understand that, you know, when this kind of thing happens, that ultimately, you know, uh, it ain't just a small sliver of society that pays its price. Ultimately, it's a wide sliver of society throughout the globe or that pay the price in terms of kind of these kind of, you know, unfortunate incidents that happen from time to time. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Finally, I often wonder that who is police in the U.S.? When you're talking about the nuclear uh, nuclear, uh, nuclear uh, submarines and ships, and the U.S. has quite a few of them, who monitors them? I maintain they probably doing all kind of pollution throughout the ocean, and they're just not saying nothing about it. Your response, Brother Anthony? Are you with me, Brother Anthony? Since you don't have Brother Anthony, let's try to see. Let's bring in Brother Moses. Who are regulating and monitoring the U.S. behavior as relates to how they deal with nuclear materials? Is it possible not only are they polluting the Pacific Ocean, but they're doing it wherever they are? Your response, Brother Moses? Yeah, it's a political economy, and we're dominated by the profit-driven corporate system, the military-industrial complex is driving the economy, and uh, they have no humanity. We have to stop them. There's no question about it. We have to stop them, and they they won't stop themselves. They they have an insatiable desire for profit. They have no no compassion, no empathy, no altruism, no charity, no love for the people, and that's the bottom line. So. You know, until um, we once we recognize that and get organized, we we you know this gangster this gangster mentality of of um, might makes right and uh, and the U.S. can do no wrong is this got to be challenged and um, this is a task we're faced with. Thank you. Mr. Gallinari, you like to respond to that scenario as well? Uh, definitely, this is a war machine that has to be stopped. After Hiroshima, remember, uh, I think at 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, the second bomb was dropped. And uh, this was uh, after the... I can tell I listen to the audience. There's severe severe weather in this area for some reason or another. We are having some technical problems on our board. So if you see these interruptions, there are interruptions that are beyond our capability. Uh, we are just lost since Eleanor. Let's see if we go back to Brother Anthony. Are you back, Brother Anthony? Yes, I am. 
Yes, I was just asking you to respond to the possibility of who is regulating the behavior of all these nuclear submarines and ships that the U.S. has. Um, Actually, no, no one from, no one from, uh, supposedly the International uh, uh, Atomic Energy Commission, but uh, the U.S. uh, tends to flout international law as we, uh, if you analyze U.S. history correctly. And uh, so right now, uh, you know, there's no force on on Earth that regulates uh, uh, nuclear energy use because the the, the U.S. chooses to do uh, chooses when to invoke uh, international law and when not to. So in, in that case, as long as uh, imperialism exists, there is no uh, no, no, no regulation of uh, nuclear energy. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Uh, as we talk about this issue, and we talk about critiquing racist capitalism, let's make this transition to this article that we'd like to share with our listening audience. And it was then and it's now as it relates to the crucial, the central point from this article, which is titled, The West and the Majority World, Repression Versus Openness. Again, it came out of Talisur. This was back in November 2022. It's a real fascinating, interesting article and as you critique and look at the world. It talks about the West and the majority of the world. One represents repression, the other one versus openness. Start with Brother Haki, when you read the article, what was the central thing that was important to you, uh, Brother Haki, when you read this article, in terms of explaining what is going on today, how countries are realigning, and this whole question about the West and this question of losing democracy. There's no more hypocrisy when it comes to the West. You know, they're for the minority and not for the majority. Speak to the sense of things that came to your attention when you read this particular article, Brother Haki. Yeah, brother. Yeah, brother. Africa. I couldn't. I couldn't open that article, so I. I. I, I can't respond to that uh, that question because I didn't open. I couldn't open the article, so I didn't read it. So I. I. Uh, I don't want to. Uh, uh, to to attempt to answer the question because I haven't read the article. So I, I'll. I'll pass on this one. All right, let's go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, your response to this article. Uh, my response to the article was that uh, uh, that uh, the Alba countries and also uh, uh, the countries in uh, in East Asia are uh, are, uh, are are reacting aversely to the hegemony that uh, U.S. and and European imperialism claim to have over the world. Uh, That was my biggest takeaway uh, from uh, from that article, is that that, uh, Central and South America 
and um uh, uh the countries in uh in uh in uh in East Asia are fighting uh, against uh of uh, the 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 interests of uh the uh the European and uh North American countries. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, what you took from this article? Brother Moses. Thank you, Brother Africa. We see here that uh, Chairman Mao's assessment of the world, the political economy of the world with the superpowers, the developed countries of Europe, and um, the exported countries of the third world, Asia, Africa, Latin American people of color. We see that the third world is uniting daily and recognizing the source of this exploitation and seeking unity and and uh, cooperation among itself, and that's what's represented by this article. Um, um, we we have to unite when we have a common oppressor. We have to unite to to, to struggle against the oppression, and that's that's only natural. The countries want independence. People want revolution and nations want liberation this is a historical trend that is irresistible and so we see it being played out daily and uh and we have to move forward thank you thank you brother moses your critique sister eleanor well we see that uh countries in the sahel are really uh, experiencing an anti-West movement. And this movement begins with uh, dropping that uh, CFR, the French currency, shaking the shackles of France, and developing a common currency. So, you know, as Brother Moses said, people want revolution and countries want liberation. But we have to, the nations and the oppressed people of the world have to come up with a plan and a formula to achieve these things. And certainly, these are the most progressive steps that we've seen uh, since uh, the liberation uh, movement of the early 1960s that they would take action to develop an independent currency and not only unite with the Asian, with the African brothers and sisters, but invite other nations to join them. South Africa, uh, I understand, is interested in being a part of the BRICS. So this was definitely uh, uh, very uh, enlightening and showed the progression of the nations uh, in Africa, in West Africa, uh, towards shaking the shackles of not only France and the West, but also of colonialism and their independence movement. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Panelists, one of the things I took from this article, which I thought was real fascinating, is for these countries to recognize the necessity to organize in blocks 
as one when it comes to dealing with the West. You know, I believe if you look at history since World War II, any country that came in combat with, the, with any Western country, it never took them on one-on-one. They always fought the whole block. As Tupac would say, they fought the whole gang, the thugs. Now, if you look at that phenomenon, wouldn't it make more sense for African countries to understand the necessity for them to come together as one, to come together under the objective of pan-Africanism, if they are to survive? Your response, Brother Anthony. Are you there, Brother Anthony? Okay, we still must lost Brother Anthony and Brother Haki. Your response to the logic is looking at how these formations are being created in reference to dealing with the West and that gangsterism. Why haven't we heeded the call to understand the necessity for pan-Africanism? Why all the African nations who join up in this state keep thinking they can operate and function and compete with the West? Brother Haki, your general response to that phenomenon. Yeah, you're, you're right. You're right, Brother Africa. You know, uh, clearly, you know, a, a fragmented uh, opposition cannot defeat an organized opposition. And clearly, you're absolutely correct. Uh, the, Afri- the Western world op- operates as a, as a unit, and, and, and we have to fundamentally understand that. So we talk about essentially a fragmented Africa, and we talk about competing interests. Unless uh, Africa creates a situation where those interests are aligned, uh, the week, I think what's going to happen, Africa will continue to, you know, to allow itself to be manipulated and divided, you know, by Western geopolitical strategy. And I think, indeed, that's happening. I think one of the things, and what Sister Eleanor alluded to, she talked about the use of the CIFA in terms of uh, a currency, you know, for West African states. So the 14 West African states to use that currency. And the mere fact that when you start to think about the fact that um, uh, the France, France, you know, requires 14 West African states to to fundamentally give 50% of their reserves to France, which France then take those reserves, put into its banks, use it to leverage against you know, to buy currencies, particularly the euro, to make more wealth for France at the expense of African states. Now, that's only possible to the extent that you have this kind of division that goes on that, that goes on in Africa. If, in fact, Africa saw itself as a strong, united, you know, continent, uh, certainly that kind of, that uh, most 14 African states, will have the resolve they need in terms of saying to France, listen, we're not going to do that. That is insane. This kind of ruthless exploitation has come to an end. We're not going to participate in it. Uh, so, but unfortunately, given the, the kind of divisions that exist, and particularly when you talk about kinds of, uh, uh, the kind of uh, power, the EU in particular, well, in terms of you know, its relationship with a country like, like Nigeria, in terms of its ability, in terms of shaping Nigerian policy, to the point that Nigerian policy becomes a carbon copy of Western interests. And when Longshore has such a scenario, then the bottom line is that, you know, Africa remains divided, and which means that when you come talk about fighting a united force like the West, uh, it, becomes, it becomes undoable. Uh, so clearly you're absolutely correct about Africa. Uh, it, it, it takes a united, organized entity to go, go up against an organized entity and win. Without that, it's impossible. And I close with that. You know, Brother Haki and panelists, based upon the okey-doke that France put on many West African countries at the time of getting that independence, we can see this kind of modal operandi plays out throughout our community, no matter where we are. And I think a good example of that is this article that we encourage our listening audience to check out when they get a chance that is titled, 
Passed Act aims to protect athletes, integrity of college sports. What in the hell does capitalism know about integrity in these institutions? It's an extra article to read because it brings up this phenomenon for me. When you look at what they are proposing now, because the NIL uh, rule where athletes now, some athletes, not all, some and a few athletes can get some compensation for playing sports while they're in college. But they now talking about bringing new laws and rules to make it more equitable, to make it fair, to make sure colleges can exist to protect the athletes. When you look at these proposals and the last one that just was submitted in Congress, that's stalling for the okie doke. One of the things they have in these new changes is that they want to make make it so that athletes cannot get a percentage of any money that these universities make off of their labor and sport. They also want to make it so that athletes cannot really get money because one of the things that they want to do is take away what they already had in place for bringing back. That is, they talking about athlete cannot transfer not unless he have been at the university for three years, because you only have four years total. And if you want to transfer, you got to set out one year after that. Well, if they did that, he'd be no good to them, and he'd be no good to the professional, to the professional unleave. Because most of the time, if you miss out like that, you have a great possibility that most um, professional teams will not want you. So they really talk about going back to the same old plantation they had that they had and neutralizing again, making sure athletes don't get paid for their work. Y'all response to this particular article. I'll start out with you, um, Brother Hackey. Yeah, you you you're absolutely correct. I mean, uh this this past act has nothing to do in terms of interest of the athletes. This is as far as they're concerned, trying to innovate ways in which your policy benefits those institutions. For instance, when they talk about the fact that when they talk about the fact that uh, you know, they talk about revenue sharing, uh, so within a conference, and that's what they do anyway. Uh, but within a conference, so you have a situation in which you know these these schools share you know the proceeds in terms of when they play these play these sporting events, and so the, the the institutions benefit at the expense of the athletes. And of course, as you alluded to earlier, one of the things reason why they don't want the uh, athletes to benefit. Uh, because they understand that the athletes are not there in terms of, in terms of you know, what is in their best interest. The athletes are there for the interest of the university. And given that reality, it's not surprising that these these these, these administrators, these politicians, would innovate policy, which is which is to the detriment of the athletes at, at large. Also, I think one of the things you know when when when, when, you, when you talk about in terms of um, uh, you know when you talk about when you talk about if a if a university makes uh. Uh, twenty million average is twenty million dollars in, in in profits a year that they they're liable to finance the medical care of those athletes for for a, for a two year period. If they make fifty million dollars a year, they're obligated to finance the health care for these athletes for four years. Here's the problem with that. The reality is that if you expect these 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 major institutions to tell you the truth in terms of their earnings, are you sadly mistaken? No one is if they know the criteria is, is is twenty million versus fifty million. If they know if they reach those amounts that they are subject to pay money out in terms of health care for former athletes, then the, the natural inclination is to understate what the profits are or to create means in which 
you can you can uh, maybe use investing to to diminish what you actually your, your actual earnings. And so therefore, on paper, that's perfectly legal and just. And so therefore, in that context, it clearly sets the game that's being perpetuated. Also, I, I think that you know when it, you know when they talk about the um, of the transfer that you alluded to earlier, Brother Africa, and you talk about three, three years down the road, uh, clearly you, you're absolutely correct. If you wait three years and then you got a set of years to transfer, uh, that's essentially what you're talking about is essentially four years of inactivity, relatively speaking. And the bottom line is that you're right. Uh, the odds in terms of making the professional ranks becomes uh, very, very uh, difficult at that point in history. But that's precisely the point. The point is to force athletes to stay at those universities to make sure that the universities can profit, you know, at the athletes' expense. But it's incumbent upon the athletes themselves in terms of fighting, you know, for, for, for unions or fighting for those, those measures which serves the interests of athletes. Because if they don't do it, the bottom line is that it's not going to be done. And clearly this past act is just a, just a, 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 just a, a, a rehash, you know, of, uh, 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 of this, uh, the slave narrative in which uh, people position is that they own other people based upon any number of you know nefarious you know notions. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, the past act is problematic, and I close with that. This example is definitely a good example of dealing with racial capitalism, which we're going to discuss in a few minutes. Uh, we're going to do, Brother, let's see, Brother Anthony got back with us. Brother Anthony, can you hear us? Yes, sir. Okay, Brother Anthony, we're glad to have you back. Your response to this um, article, Pans Act aims to protect athletes, integrity of college sports. You know, I said earlier, what integrity? College sports never had none. The same old criminals is playing the same old game. They won't get paid while they still won't while we get played. Your response to this article, Brother Anthony. My response to this article is the same hypocrisy that permeates uh, uh, collegiate sports, and uh, you know what they uh, what they want to do is try to preserve the integrity of these uh, 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 of these colleges at the expense of the labor of these uh, so-called student-athletes, which, uh, which they're really working for, uh, uh, professionally for these colleges and universities. And, uh, and, uh, is uh, is a continuation of the same hypocrisy that permeates uh, collegiate sports, particularly uh, Division One A and Double uh, A basketball and uh, football. So when you look at this scenario, it's similar to how they use the apple at the foundation of raw materials and sport nuts all around the world. They're doing the same thing in sports. They take the major revenue revenue sports and use that as the foundation to support other sports and other entities that may not reflect the people who are the workers. For example, the major revenue sports are basically what you're talking about is basketball and football. Who played most of basketball and football? It's the Africans. Who they talking about making sure that they can't get money? It's the Africans. So come and talk to us. We have with us 
a friend and supporter of After on the Moon. We're bringing Brother Keeplong. Your thoughts, Brother Keeplong, what happened to After on the Moon? Yeah, brother, I, I, I apologize. I, I had a contribution when y'all was talking about the atomic bomb, but I didn't know how to get in. So I punched well, the one I, button. Y'all was on another subject. So y'all go ahead and continue this subject. You can come back to me on that. Because well, I, I had, I had yeah, a comment on the atomic bomb. Go ahead and talk to her. The mic is yours now. What's your contribution on the atomic uh, bomb? Well, I apologize. Well, I, I, I apologize. I didn't know how to get in. We talk about atomic bomb. You hear a guy named Joseph Rotblatt. B R Joseph R O T B L A T. He was a nuclear physicist. He bowed out on the Manhattan Project for more reasons. The word mass destruction that just seemed to disturb him. And when he bowed out, they called him um communist or traitor or all every, every bad thing you can think of. And he was doing something. And I got to go online to find out what it was. I was looking at the video. That's kind of get a lot of Canadian films, and they talked about him in his Canadian films. And he was working very hard to eliminate the use of the uh, nuclear weapons. But I forgot what the, uh, what, what it's called. It has something to do with um, getting rid of nuclear weapons. But what I wanted to say, though, is when you said that the first atomic um, bomb was dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima in '45, right, there's some research that suggests that it might have been dropped on Africans first. Because, you know, when they try to find tests for disease and stuff, we always be the experiment. They experiment us first, even, even at these hospitals. And, and here you had a lack, right? So the question is, why would they experiment on us? Because we were expendable. And they want to know if the bomb worked. If it didn't work, then Japanese have time to retaliate. So they had to know if it worked. They had to find if the people would continue to fight or run. They had to find out how the pilots could react to it. So in 1982... Black Scholar Magazine, Volume 13, the article titled, What Happened at Port Chicago? And by Peter Vogel. And what happened was, if everybody closed their eyes, they know what atomic explosion looks like. It's a mushroom cloud with a long tail. That's called a Wilson condensation cloud. Anytime an atomic bomb is dropped on the water, it forms a long tail and branch out like a mushroom. When it dropped the bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Somebody said, that's a typical Port Chicago fashion. This is what you're talking about. He said, last year, they had a explosion just like that at Port Chicago. They had a San, San Francisco Bay. A lot of black soldiers were killed. And when the movie came out, Port, Port, Port Chicago, they made it like a gas explosion, you know. They didn't show the long tail in the air with a mushroom hanging out. So you can go online and find this information. And, and the guy did a research, he says, because they had enough information there and for the full for atomic bomb. Because you hear people say that Hitler was working on atomic bombs. So the, so the uranium and all the material was out there. But the article is titled, um, What Happened at Port Chicago? It's a Black Scholar magazine, volume 13, 1982. But if you go online and type in Peter Vogel, P-E-T-E-R-V-O-G-E-L, Black Scholar Magazine or, or Port Chicago, you'll find that information. So I just want to put that out there because um, when you think about um, Hiroshima and Hiroshima, it's like in a vacuum, right? And we have to study Port Chicago. To give you the summary of what happened in Port Chicago, if I had a shotgun pointed to you, and everybody saw me with a shotgun, they said, did the Kevlar have a shotgun? Said, yes, he had a shotgun. What happened? Well, he shot Lee, 
and Lee went through the brick wall and 12 feet in the air. The obvious conclusion would be he had more than shotgun pellets in that gun. So when they described what happened at Port Chicago, they said, no way in world that was a, a, a traditional weapon. There had to be a weapon that's a magnitude of a nuclear weapon. So I just want to bring that out in just in case a lot of people didn't know about it. You can look that up online. It's online. As far as, um, about the, about, far as about the athletes, I, I coincide with Brother um, Haki said and the other brothers said about um, the athletes. All right, Brother Mackey, thank you for your contribution. It's still online. If you have something else you want to say as we discuss these issues, just always hit one and we'll bring you in with your last phone number. All right, you listen to Ask on the Move. We can bring in our sister out of Northern Ireland. her say so in on this article dealing with the athletes. They claim they won't protect the integrity of college sports. They never had none. But anyway, sister out of what did you take from this article? Well, I um, guess what you said, Brother Africa, is the article claims that they want to protect the integrity of, of the colleges. In reality, uh, the colleges uh, are plantations, and the way the article is read, as uh, other speakers have said, which are sitting out three years and or sitting out a year, not being able to transfer. Quite frankly, the goal of uh, many of these colleges wasn't, it was not to educate these athletes, but to make money off of them. And their grades, uh, there's been numerous scandals over the years about their grades not being their grades or someone else's grades and passing them through and them and we've seen uh in, in in over time athletes who could not matriculate as a college graduate what they were was college slaves intended to make money. This is a billion-dollar industry. When they talk about covering the health benefits of an athlete for two years, four years, eight years, that's out of the question, and that's unreasonable. Some of these people may sustain, some of these workers, and they are workers, may sustain injuries that will impact them the rest of their lives. Why should there be any kind of legislation that limits their health and protection and income at all? They are the ones earning the money. The coaches and the athletic directors have Always many complaints and this and that, but look at the money they earn. The athlete's income is not comparable. And the reality is that is a job, and they should be able to negotiate salaries, uh, uh, seven-figure, eight-figure salaries that is uh, in line with that of what the industry or the league is making as well as their individual college. You see, their college may not be uh, earning 
that much, but the league is. And this is some very unusual accounting that these people have. I, I wonder how one college can only be collecting $50 million while the league, and I think they're four, if I'm correct, what I read in the article, is collecting billions. Something's wrong with that information. And how do you assess the bottom line when it comes to these athletes? Um, do they include all revenue, including the selling of the shirts and the cups and the Oh, all the things that go along with this uh, sports and college basketball. This is a exploitation of children, of openly Congress taking action to harm children and restricting the health care. That's what was so strikingly horrible to restrict the health care benefits that they were, you know, some timeline. And that's just impossible. As I said, no telling what their injuries may be, how long they may occur, or when they may make their appearance. And uh, this is just something designed to confuse the public to make the public think some action is being taken and also to make the public believe that the students are uh, taking advantage of the colleges and universities. So I um, I don't see the as being anything than the Shackles Act of 2023, and I think that uh, it uh, does not meet the goals of protecting these young persons, these children, these uh, man, uh, what do they call them, man-child athletes. They do not protect them, or the women, because remember, you know, now we have the women in in soccer, we have women in, in so many areas, and this has not uh, been well thought out and needs to be um, really brought back to the drawing board and pulled together um, real labor organizers and labor um, supporters to how we set up some kind of dichotomy so that the students receive a greater receive reasonable compensation for their work because this is a billion dollar industry the TV deals so many things that go along with this the radio uh, so much, so many ways they're making money to be events. So uh, that's my comment. Uh, the athletes are not being protected. They're not receiving equal protection. 
uh, it is uh, only uh, a move to codify the university exploitation of the athlete. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. You have just been listening to what's going on in your world of community on Africa on the Moon. Uh, we will now make our transition when we come back from our revolutionary culture break. We will make our transition to part two, a critique of racial capitalism. That's right. We can have a critical discussion on this concept of racial capitalism. We can talk about why it's important and what it means to you and the rest of the world and Come back and let's go nowhere and join us by dialing 323-679-0841. Hit one, your knowledge, your last number. Like always, we may not give you what you want, but we definitely do our best to give you what you need. This is Brother Africa, and you are listening to Africa on the Move. With this course of presentation, where Brother Michael told us they don't care about us, unless our sister Marion says that, Africa, African people will be free. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Michael, eles não ligam pra gente.
can be against that If that is for my people I don't know who can try Who can try to be my enemy My Africa want to be free
we welcome you back to Afro on the Moon, and we're going to go into this transitional point to deal with our theme tonight, which is part two, a critique of racist capitalism. That's right. We'll leave information so you can think. And like always, we can introduce you to organizations so you can think more clearly. It's only through being organized that will allow you the ability to think more clearly. So we like to encourage our listening audience, audience, our friends, and all Africans, and people of goodwill to join an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people or the fighting for liberation of humanity is going to become fair and just. From time to time on this program, you hear various organizations that you can come a part of. So there is no excuse for you not being in an organization. We have introduced you to the All African People's Revolutionary Party, D.C. We have introduced you to the Pan-African Revolutionary Socialist Party, PRST. We have introduced you to the D.C. Metro Coalition in support of the Cuban Revolution. Over the years of being on this radio program, we have induced, introduced you to many, many organizations. So, brothers and sisters, please join the organization if you really love your people and want to solve these problems. If you want to defeat and change the dynamic of your oppression, you must remember an unorganized force cannot go against an organized force and win. You must learn to dance, and that dance is called Let's Get Organized. This is a little side note from Brother Africa on Africa on the Moon. So let's continue down this road of liberation as we discuss a critique of racial capitalism, which is an interesting video that you can find on YouTube. Um, can't think of the brother who gave the lecture. Forgive me for that, but if you get a chance, please go to it. It's called Racial Capitalism. Check out. There's so much to learn. And what we're going to try to do tonight is just highlight some points and some aspects that this particular concept dealt with and deal with. And we hope that you can use it as means to better understand the world that you're in and how to move your people and humanity forward. So on that note, to our political panelists and analysts, we can just ask the general question from their perspective of what is racial capitalism and why does it matter? Brother, how can you start us off with that discussion? From your, how you view what is racial capitalism and why does it matter? I'm sorry, repeat the question, Brother Africa, I can't hear you. What is racial capitalism and why does it matter? Oh, well, yeah, well, well, racial capitalism, uh, probably, the most fundamental way of putting it is that in order to, uh, to, to, to maximize profits, uh, there's got to be a certain amount of exploitation that exists in order to maximize profits for for people who are very wealthy. In that context, uh, the you know um, the, the, the 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 color of one's skin uh, becomes a kind of systemic approach uh, in terms of doing business. In other words, if you want a job done, and if you got a situation where you where you can pay someone relatively lower compared to someone else based upon skin color. Then not only do you accrue large profits from from that kind of practice, uh, but inevitably you create a, a you create a conditions that suggest 
that the, the person's worth is uh, can can be severely limited. And so in that context, in terms of your ability, uh, based upon skills, education, so forth and so on, uh, those kind of things come less important than the color of your skin. And so therefore, in that context, we understand that there's a severe amount of, pro- uh, pro- of profitability associated with this racial practice. And so you can't divorce this from capitalism. This is one of the problems that we talk about. Now, particularly when we talk about a system that's diametrically opposed to the full employment of all the citizens in the context of America, capitalism, there are over 50 million people uh, who would never find jobs in American society. That's not by coincidence. That is all structurally determined. And so when you superimpose race upon that, then you've got additional means of, means of more people, you know, who are simply not uh, uh, suitable as far as the capital system is concerned. And so their, their ability in terms of being employed as far as the system is concerned, it's not really important. And this is all aspects of racial, racial capitalism. And the question is why it's so important to understand this, because if we're sincere in terms of putting an end to systematic uh, uh, inequality when it comes to wages or systematic inequality when it comes to opportunity, then we have to understand that you know, if we don't first and foremost deal with that racial aspect of capitalism, the bottom line is that nothing's going to change. If you simply relegate it to this discussion around class, you essentially uh, limit any any any, any type of uh, 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 any type of uh, possibility uh, for the elimination of, of racism. Which means that if you don't eliminate racism, which means you perpetuate you perpetuate the inequality. Which means that ultimately it, inequality doesn't just affect African people, but it affects people across the board. Because as long as you got a body of people which you can hire and lower wages. It means that all other people's salaries, as a consequence, by nature, must drop, must must fall as well. And so, therefore, so we have a vested interest in terms of ridding ourselves of racial capitalism. So, I think for that reason alone, I think people have to really long and hard in terms of eliminating racial capitalism in American society and throughout the world. Thank you, Brother Hockey. Brother Anthony, your take on how would you define racial capitalism and why does it matter? <clears throat> Racial capitalism is uh, the exploitation of one human being by another based on his or her ethnicity, including gender. And uh, and uh, that aspect of, of uh, exploitation uh, is a part of European feudalism. That's how, that's how it comes to play a role in modern capitalism, which was developed in Europe. And uh, the, the first people to be exploited based on ethnicity were the Irish who were exploited by the English. Eventually, it came to include other groups, such as the Slavs, and um, uh, let's see, and also uh, the Spanish and Portuguese. And uh, for that, uh, and that's the reason why uh racial capitalism is important today because it was a part of uh 
European feudalist history of development, out of which comes capitalism. So uh, that's why it's important to fight against that today, because um, because unlike other forms of feudalism, uh, uh, feudalism in Europe had uh, ethnic roots as well as economic. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, your perspective on how would you define racial capitalism and why does it matter? Thank you. Um, I think Brother Anthony attempted and did a pretty good job of doing a dialectical and historical materialist approach to the problem and in terms of analysis of it. And its development is from its inception to its present form and its future. Um, I think the Chairman Mao said that I can't remember his exact quotes, but but that capitalism arose and throve on the black backs of black people, basically, and that um, you know modern capitalism was based on the slave slavery. It's a political economy, and uh, um, as Professor Gerald Horns points out the concept of whiteness developed in, in, in the U.S. of A. Um, in order to justify the slave trade and the cordoning off the market from slave to to white white owner. And um, so, you know, we have to understand that these this, this whole concept of whiteness and, uh, and uh, white na- nationism, that's what I call it, white nationism, basically, uh, to try to nation war against nation. Uh, and basically, uh, it, they thrive on, on, on unpaid labor. And uh, it's, it's a heritage, uh, justifiably known as the Heritage Foundation, this conservative think tank. Uh, but it's, what is the heritage? Uh, slavery and uh, wealth and uh, the corporate America and you know, this this is where Donald Trump comes in with his great America, make America great again, et cetera. Uh, you know, this this whole white power structure uh, has to be dismantled uh, and shown for what it's worth. Uh, it's a matter of education, ultimately. Uh, people, when people know better, they do better. And, uh, you know, people are learning every day from experience and from People who are who are enlightened and uh, iron sharpening iron, uh, each one teaching one, and uh, sooner or later there's going to be a different day in this country. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And Eleanor, your perspective on this question: What is racial capitalism, and why it's important? Well. What made it important? What makes it important, as everyone has said, is the basis of the economic development of the United States of America. Now, this brother, this African, is a historian, 
born in 1962, and he is concerned about the economic development uh, of the United States. And the reality is, as Brother Anthony said, it was based on chattel slavery. It was based on when people, the only thing that people had of value were the slaves. So Wall Street in the United States of America has this foundation in chattel slavery, as does every other industry and numerous financial institutions and others that still exist today, their wealth base began with chattel slavery. So what this, uh, what Robin Kelly is doing is and does with his work is take a historical view at the United States and its development. He is, uh, after all, a uh, educator, and his focus is economics on capitalism and uh, the roots of American capitalism are in chattel slavery. So what is racial capitalism and why does it matter? It is the foundation of the U.S. economy and continues to serve racism, continues to serve the U.S. economy. The descendants of the slaves are a larger portion of the U.S. prison industrial complex. So they're working for capitalist corporations in capitalist institutions that imprison them. So you see the economy growing and developing around racism and it is accepted as a social paradigm in this country, in the United States of America. You also see uh, hello, can Where's you it? hear me? Yes, finish your question. The point is is that uh, um what is racial capitalism and why does it matter? It's simply the foundation of the U.S. economy and continues to be the foundation of the U.S. economy with wage slaves and its economy is set up to foster this poverty where people require 
snap benefits in order to feed their children and families after working on the front lines. They require assistance with housing after being the frontline workers in the United States. We see them cleaning our streets. We see them bagging our groceries. We see them pruning our lawns. We see them repairing our cars. So this is the foundation of the U.S. economy. So it should always be on the forefront of any discussion when you talk about U.S. economics and U.S. development, as well as that of the EU, which is colonialist uh, grip, colonial grip on Africa today. And on Thank you, Sister Nations as well. Thank you, brother. What I want to do right now, ask one who listened to the presentation on racial capitalism from the lecturer and professor, I believe he was a professor as well. He raises some interesting points. I would like to have my panelists and his response to these points. You may agree or disagree with it, but I would just like for y'all to respond to these points. To give the people something to think about as we continue to struggle with how do we transform this society? How do how does we um, do capitalism from a perspective where we can um, find another alternative that will fit the needs and interests of the masses of the people? These were some of the points that he made. I'd like y'all like to think about and respond to them. He stated that racial capitalism is about values, extreme values. Capitalism emerges as a race and gender machine. Race and identity is not the same. Race is a structural power question, and skin color is not an essential feature of racism. Race is used as the capacity of conjuring capital at the state to capture the white identity class. So I'll just stop right there, Brother Hackey. Some of the things I just articulated, uh, just like to get your response to them. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I, I understood the question, Brother Africa. I, uh, could, if you could just He's summarize the point that you, that you made. Now, so he mentioned several points that deal with this question of racial, racial capitalism. I just want you to get your response to it. If you agree or disagree with it, what you think about it? Point number one, he said, capitalism is a, racial capitalism is about values, extreme values. Point number one. Point number two, capitalism emerges as a race and gender machine. He also talked about race and identity is not the same. Race is a structural issue. It's a question of power. Where skin color is not an essential feature of racism. So I'll just stop right there. Your response to those points. I I I, I got to tell you, brother Africa. I'm 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 sort of confused. I'm I'm, I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to understand the implications of the uh, of the position that he espouses. Uh. You know, uh, you know. Listen, 
I certainly agree that one of the things when you when you talk about race, uh, race is is, is is more a question in terms of uh, you know uh, fomenting a a, a a a a for lack of a better term a, a a white nationalist ideology. So race is not so much in terms of defining a particular group a particular way, but more in getting white folks to, to see themselves up, up apart from the particular group that's been identified. So in that context, you know, I, 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 I agree. I, I, I agree. But the problem is that in the context in the context of capitalism, one of the things that if you're going to if we, without a distinction, the question in terms of being able to motivate people in terms of carrying out the policy of the state, carrying out discriminatory policies, or carrying out policies which are disadvantageous to certain groups. Those parameters have to be defined. In that context, the question of race has to be essential. You can't you can't separate the the question of race. It's a race is irrelevant. That 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 the, 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 the most apparatus of capitalism is all about the class. That's 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 absurd to me. When you start to think about you know when you start to think about in terms of the evolution of capitalism, when you start to talk about the ethnic oppression of, of folks, you know, in Europe. As, as the beginning of capitalism, bear in mind, it wasn't formed of capitalism at that point. It was only until the 14th century that formally became part of capitalism emerged as a system. But, but have, put, putting that aside, uh, once it became capitalism, and once you start creating these, these, these narratives which suggest that the inferiority of people based upon skin color, once you start negating people's history for the sole purpose of disguising their history, you create a certain perception of a particular group then to say to me that somehow that race is not a quintessential component in terms of that motivation to me is just stupid. I don't, I can't put it the other way. Uh, you know, but, but the, the whole point is that, you know, you know, I, listen, brother Africa, uh, I, this, this, this kind of discussion, you know, I, 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 I'll be on, I, you know, I'll be talking for days because I, I, because I got a whole lot to say about this discussion. I, I don't think it, it may be ill-advised to talk about some of the things that I'm thinking. But certainly, Brother Africa, I, I think that I, you know, in, in, in terms of, you know, his point in terms of dismissing the question in terms of race and capitalism, I, I just have a very difficult time saying that, Brother Africa, I'm sure that other people respond to this. And maybe if I feel like it, I'll, uh, I'll come back at a later point and, and expound on things I'm, I don't want to say at this point. Uh, thank you, Brother Hockey. Brother Anthony? He raises the point of the issue of race and identity is not the same. Race is a structural power, while skin color is not an essential feature of racism. Your response to that, Brother Anthony? Um, I would disagree with that. Now, uh, actually, um. I would actually, to a certain to a certain extent, I, I can understand where he's coming from, uh, because uh, ultimately, culture is uh, is a more determining factor in a person's identity than skin color. Skin color. Uh, can vary by the climate that you uh, that an individual, individual grows up in. 
whereas uh, one's culture uh, can include skin color, but not necessarily uh, uh, exclusive to that, if you understand what I'm saying. In other words, in other words, uh, they, uh, among Europeans, there was discrimination based upon one, one was, was Irish or Slavic or Danish or, uh, or, or these uh, other ethnic groups that made up Europe. So internal to Europe itself, there was uh, a, 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 a certain amount of discrimination based upon ethnic or cultural differences among Europeans. Now, skin color uh, became important when it became important to distinguish Africans from Europeans. That's where skin color comes into play. Uh, but um, uh, let's see. Over, uh, I, I would say cultural differences among uh, various ethnicities within a given nation are more uh, are, are more important factors than say skin color. And uh, I know uh, I know it's a it's a very uh, long answer to a basic question, but uh, let's see. Uh, not all. All, all Europeans or all Africans are the same skin color either, but they do. But there are cultural differences among Africans and among Europeans. Thank you, brother Anthony, sister Eleanor, and the rest of the panelists. I'm interested in hearing y'all perspectives. But this is an ongoing debate on this question, and the question is. As we talk about racial capitalism, if we destroy racism, do we put an end to capitalism? If we destroy racism, do we put an end to capitalism? What's your perspective on that question, Sister Eleanor? Well, no, we do not destroy capitalism. But um, the video uh, with Robin D. G. Kelly, what is racial capitalism and why does it matter? I was not able to pull up, but what I did do was review some of his works, and his works focus on history and economics related to the United States. And as Brother Anthony said, race played a major role in the development of the U.S., Chattel slavery was the main collateral that the founders of the United States used 
Uh, they didn't have anything else of value to trade with, to trade other than chattel slavery or perhaps the products of the uh, the, the products produced by the slaves, uh, cotton and tobacco and corn. And if we look in the Caribbean, of course, sugar cane. And that became important in the production of rum and fostering the slave triangle. You know, you bring them in, you take out barrels of rum. You bring in the slaves, you take out barrels of rum back to Africa. So um, I reviewed samples of uh, uh, Robin Kelly's work. And again, his work is about his work is about history and 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 the role what he has found um, as an as whether he's a historian first or an economist I do not know I didn't read his biography other than I know he was born in 1962 as an economist looking at the United States and its development. It was on the back of Africans. So in this country, race played a major role. It was on the back of Africans and indigenous people, as Brother Maurice always reminds us. Not only were many of them enslaved right beside us, but their land was stolen from them throughout the Americas. And I just want to go back really quickly, Brother Africa, to the college athletes. Now, the college athletes, both the league and the conference, really doesn't want anyone being involved in uh, their control over the athletes because these students are a form of slaves. They have to work, not receive any wages for their work, just to receive the opportunity to earn a degree and take classes on the campus where they attend school. And their masters want to restrict their ability to transfer it from institution to institution and play basketball. The players, for example, the um, agents who go out and find these young athletes are familiar with the humble backgrounds which many of them come from and their lack of exposure to academia. So any kind of legislation that would restrict their ability to transfer and do other things literally restricts their ability to grow, and it restricts them from taking advantage of knowledge as it comes to them. They may not even realize there's a a Brown University or MIT 
or that some state schools are like Ivy League schools. If they're attending school and attending for something like that. So to get back to Kelly and to conclude, he is looking at the economic structure of the United States. I do not know what he discussed on the YouTube video. I tried and I was not able to access. But in reading about his work and reading some of his work, um, truncated versions of his work, his interest is in the economic development of the United States and the wealth that was built on racist philosophies. You know, look back at the Monroe Doctrine. Just go back. There's always some reason to control. We've got to show the time a little bit, so can we move on to the next event? Thank you so much. Thank you. For allowing me to speak. Next, we're going to go to Brother Tivolon. He was on the question of if we destroy racism, we'll destroy capitalism. We'll put an end to capitalism. If we destroy racism, do we put an end to capitalism? Let's go to Brother Tivolon, see what he has to say about this discussion. Brother Tivolon, the mic is yours. The answer is no. Can you hear me, Brother? Yes, we can. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. The answer is clearly no. Clearly no, because I, I I got the video, but I haven't listened to it. So I turned on today's program, hoping somebody could tell me what the video is about, because I haven't listened to the video. But those two words intertwine, Af, um, black and capitalism. Capitalism, they use things like race, sex, religion, politics to cause division. The 1% is minority. And the minority can always uh, overthrow the minority. The majority can always overthrow the minority, but they have this division going on, so that won't happen. So if you got real racism, capitalism will still flourish. Because if you look at the, the framers of the Constitution, it was no racism when they said only landowners can vote. And when you voted, the people that you voted for were them. So they gave you an illusion of freedom. There was no racism then. So I haven't read, listened to the video yet. I will listen to the video, but I don't like those two words intertwined, racism and capitalism, because you got capitalism. Then you got things that you use to cause division among the people so capitalism can flourish. And racism being one thing, sexism being another, uh, politics being another, religious being another. Just like the Civil War, people said Civil War was fought over slavery. I think the war was fought because bankers tried to set up a centralized bank bank here, and who could defeat the United States at that, at that time, period? Nobody. The greatest image of the United States was the United States. So how do you get brothers to fight one another? Well, slavery was the issue, but slavery wasn't the only issue. Price was the issue of... Uh, there were a lot of issues that could fight on white. So when you when he put the word, I got to go back because I haven't listened to the video. I did have the video, but I, I got to understand why he called it race, racial 
capitalism. You know, I see capitalism, and I see race, sex, politics, religion is a tool to keep us divided so that 1% can stay on power and the uh, majority would never overthrow them. So back to I go back to the video, find out what he means by racial capitalism. That's probably why a lot of us have problems answering that question, because you intertwine the two, right? Well, like I mentioned earlier in the system, if you get rid of racism, capitalism still will flourish. <laughs> so that's all I have to add to that point. Thank you, my brother. Let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's your thoughts on this question of race, the end of racism, but they're putting into capitalism? Brother Moses. And we have to we have to take a dialectical and historical materialist approach to this problem. We have to see things for realistically uh in the development and growth and uh future. And racism is an ideological problem. You know, it's about ideas, it's about thoughts, it's about feelings, it's about values and personal values. That's what racism is all about. And and you can't get rid of racism without getting rid of capitalism. It's impossible to do it. Capitalism is founded on racism, and you can't have capitalism without racism. But the only way to get rid of racism is to get rid of capitalism. And so we've got to be found on, 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 on what we, on dollars and historical materialism and scientific socialism and Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. Uh, um, you know, we... This this Chateau slavery, as Eleanor pointed out, and as others pointed out, you know that's the foundation of, of this this economy here in the U.S. of A. and um, and we have to understand that and and know it for the word. Now, getting back to these these problems of ethnicity and uh, and you know um, oppression and exploitation. That takes place. That's been taking place throughout history. Expression, expression, and exploitation and oppression, uh, ethnic groups by ethnic groups. I mean, we go back to the Bible and and we see Jews and Gentiles. And uh, Saul was a Jew and he was killing killing Christians. And uh, then he became Paul after the Damascus Road experience. And he was one of the greatest advocates of Christianity in the world. And Christianity is not a racist ideology in its essence. And so um, it's, it's nothing wrong with you. Christianity as an ideology uh, is, is just the people. And the people are taking up the, pro, the ideology and, and misapplying it. Uh, but, you know, the Jews are not a nation. The Jewish nationism is racism. The, the UN declared, and I believe it was in 76, that Zionism is racism. You know, there's no such thing as white nationism. There's no such thing as black nationism. And so, you know, we have to understand all these problems and uh, and deal with them accordingly. Uh, scientific socialism means we have to have a realistic, a real scientific view of the world. We can't just go on common sense and and feelings, and we got to you got to analyze and, and and just like with COVID-19, we had to have a scientific approach to it. We have to have a scientific approach to the social problems that we face and these political problems. And I maintain that Marxism isn't in Mao Zedong thought. It's the most advanced thought on the earth. 
and that, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought contend. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Hakeem, one of the points you made in his presentation, which I found very interesting, he said that the history of racial capitalism served as a role of crazy and subsidizing and white-only welfare state. How do you interpret that? Do you agree with that position, Brother Hakeem? I, I I agree with that. But let me let me back up a little bit, Brother Africa. <laughs> let me tell you something. You know, uh you know what? Theory is fine and it's fine that you have your point of view in terms of things and that's all good. But sometimes it just doesn't square doesn't square with the objective reality of, of, of the situation. One of the things you know, you got to ask yourself, you know, if um if 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 if, if Capitalism can exist without racism. Why the fuck does racism exist? Something they up in there for a while. You telling me you got a system that, without racism, it still could flourish. But yet, the 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 the, the people who advocate capitalism are very much in sync in terms of emotion or racism. How do you account for that? Back to the question in terms of in terms of ethnic robberies or ethnic uh, conflicts historically. We talk about the 16th century, we talk about the evolution of capitalism, okay? The world never knew anything about racism, okay? Now, racism became extremely important for some reason. I think what we have to grasp is why, why has, despite the facts of 20 years prior to the, 20, two centuries prior to 1600, you had the opportunity in terms of utilizing capitalism was very, very profitable in which you could exploit people, and you didn't need the question of race. So then why is it in, in the 16th century race becomes, becomes important? Why is that? What is it about the race that is so important to capitalism, even though you're telling me that capitalism could exist without race, without racism? I think the problem, I think the problem about Africa is that, you know, one of the things is that we, I think one of the things that we have to begin to understand you know, we have to understand the psychological dimensions. We have to understand the sociological dimensions in terms of understanding, putting together this thing that we call life. We tend to think, see th- things in terms of materialism and think that everything involves materialism, and we totally negate that aspect of that more, that more, that more uh, subtle aspect in terms of psychological and the sociological, in terms of implications, in terms of human behavior. It seems to me if you're not going to incorporate the psychological, then you cannot adequately understand why you would say, tell me that racism, that capitalism could exist despite even if racism doesn't exist, that if you eliminate racism, capitalism will still flourish. Then why the hell would racism be important in the first place? What are the psycho- psychological dimensions in terms of why the importance of racism? What function does it serve in terms of, in terms of that? It doesn't, it doesn't simply serve an interest in terms of profitability because you can exploit poor white folks with, as the 14th century uh, Europe has shown. You can exploit poor Asian people as the, as the 14th century has shown. So then what is it about the 16th century that all of a sudden they have a question of racism? Not just racism per se, but racism was codified into law, into, into government, into academia. Why is it, what is it about racism? You people are telling me that racism is irrelevant, that it's esoteric, that's bull. 
racism is very much the defining feature in terms of capitalism. This is why the capitalists understand that one of the things that they, they, they when we talk about this asymmetric war against African people, there's a reason why there's an asymmetric war against African people. There's a reason why there's an asymmetric war against Africa, the continent. And it's aside from the economics, because if you talk about shit economics, it makes more sense to incorporate more people into the economic structure, which means more profitability. Now, you tell me why the hell that reality, you still prefer to have racism. So what the hell is really going on here? It has nothing and not a damn thing to do in terms of the accumulation of wealth. It doesn't have a damn thing to do with that. And that is, and I, you know, I, 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 again, in terms of just how you define capitalism, I don't want to go into that. That's why I decided not to say anything. I mean, that's a lot of stuff in terms that we're talking about, and we're missing the surface. But I'm not going to be an advocate for the right wing and, and raise certain issues in terms of the, 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 the dissociation or how capitalism actually unfolds. I'm not going to do that because I'm not going to do them a favor by even talking about this stuff. But the, question, but the question for this panel I have to ask is that if you tell me that capitalism could exist with, with, without racism, then why the hell does racism exist? Why is that not a move to distinguish Extinguish racism. Why? Why is that? Why is they intend to proliferate racism? Why is that? Why is there a critical race theory? Why is that exist? Why is there a, a denunciation of African curriculum? Why is that? It does, if you tell me if I'm hearing correctly, you're saying that racism is not is not the function. It's not the is not the definitive reason in terms of capitalism existence. I'm telling you that's bull. I'm telling you that race is part and parcel in terms of the, the if in fact you if you got rid of racism, which means that in order for them to exploit poor white folks, then you got to find a rationale to exploit poor white folks. You can do it ethically. You can say, okay, all Italians, uh, you know, all Slavs, or whoever, all Ukrainians, or whoever. You can say they inf- you can say uh, they don't they're not quite intellectually up to par. You could say that. But the problem is that once you start saying that, then you have to explain why people who look just like them, why they're not also intellectually uh, uh, underperforming or intellectually incapable. Racism makes it much more easier in terms of forming not only division, but creating a situation, a condition which ensures a great profit, even though considerably more profits will be could be founded if, in fact, you eliminate racism and incorporate more people into the job market. I say to you, 50 million people structurally are excluded from the job market. Why no, why no response from? Why no response to that? Why do people pretend like I didn't say that? 50 million people structurally, 50 million people are excluded from the labor market. Disproportionately, African people. Why is that? Why is it not incorporating 50 million people in terms of the job market, in terms of in- enhancing the profitability? So is it economics that's really going on? Is that something else going on in terms of one's motivation? See, this is why I don't buy that, that, that class crap, because that class crap doesn't get into the essence in terms of why people do what they have to do. Recently, there was a, there was a, 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 a scientist, and he talked about uh, uh, psychological uh, research. Oh, okay, I know. I, uh, let me close by that. I know. I'm getting long-winded. Okay, I'm going I'm 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 to move forward. Let me answer your question. All right. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the creation of racism does 
does make it possible to subsidize the welfare of the state. In other words, you can get labor for free. And so, therefore, in that context, it makes sense in terms of underpaying people, specifically African people, because the profits that you assume, that you acquire, based upon that kind of exploitation, is good for the welfare state. You can make a lifestyle much better uh, for a certain segment of society, in particular, upper-middle-income individuals and the wealthy. They can benefit at the expense of all others in terms of, the, in terms of how money, how money is, is, is allocated. So if you create a situation where, where, the, where, the, where the funds, uh, in terms of interest, in terms of, in terms of, in terms of Federal Reserve uh, expenditures, and you create situations where funds are fundamentally taken from the poorest people in terms of exploiting in terms of their wages and giving those wages or the benefits of those wages to the wealthy people, then, of course, you can subsidize the welfare state. And you can make everything look like it's fine, everything is profitable, and everybody's doing okay and fine. So my question to you, so the response to your question is about Africa, yes. Uh, it does, capitalism, racial capitalism does subsidize the welfare state. Now close with that. You see, also part of the development of this question of racial capitalism and racism was to create balance. Your response to that, Brother Anthony? Um, I want to uh, add to the points uh, bro- uh, Brother Haki made and pointing out that uh, uh, around uh the the sixteenth century uh with uh your your uh europe's discovery of the western hemisphere they had an upsurge in the need of uh cheap labor now um uh, historically for geographical reasons Africa had always been close to Europe. So in order to justify the exploitation of African labor it became important to distinguish between Africans and Europeans. Recall that prior to the to the European Renaissance, Africans had had been all over Europe. Uh, 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 you know, there were even even certain Africans in leadership positions within European societies. So so in order to justify uh, the exploitation of African labor, it became necessary to distinguish between Africans and Europeans. That's where the uh the the racism among Africans and Europeans started because uh prior to that uh, uh you, you you know uh uh 
being an African or more used to be a badge of honor at one time. It was a social distinction. So, uh, so actually, so the the it was to get access to African labor. That is why it became important to distinguish between Africans and Europeans, primarily. And that distinction lasted until the present time. With, uh, without uh, a lot of Europeans not having uh, any knowledge of the prior relationships that Africa had with Europe. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Panelists, as you listen to the presentation, uh, raise the point that has already been raised, and I will put it in a different context. You talk about So old question, I'm trying to find my point I had listed earlier, that capitalism operated existed under a racial system or a racial regime. He pointed that racism was fundamentally exists for the purpose of production and reproduction of violence. That was his role under this question of Racial capitalism. Your response, Brother Moses? Certainly, you know, capitalism reproduces its values and it's, you know, it's a psychological um, because your labor, your life, your life energy, your whole life is, is functioning under this capitalist system. And so you being, you being conditioned and you are a product of conditioning and conditioning. And so, you know, you can't really transcend that. It's an existential problem. And so, you know, we have to learn from other people's experience, indirect knowledge, and uh, and our own experience, direct knowledge. And we need to study, study, study so that we can understand what's going on around us so that we can be at best self-determined what, what our future is going to be. And, uh, you know, so capitalism you know, it's a definite exploited system. Uh, there is a 1%, you know, there is a definite thing as socialism and socialized appropriation. You know, these gangsters only understand gangster tactics, evidently. I mean, might makes right. Uh, evidently, that's the only way to deal with them. And uh, so we have to get organized and take what is ours. And, um, and certainly we work for it. We've earned it. And we have a right to free education. We have a right to free health care. And we need a, a, a caring, loving, a, a altruistic, compassionate, charitable, loving people in power. And we don't have that right now. And, and so we've got to work to get that done. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Again, panelists. This is a very crucial point I think that people need to analyze. When you made a point that 
Marxism fundamentally exists for the purpose of production and reproduction of value. If we keep talking about we're going to get a value, what is the relationship between values and racism? Since I know, you can start us off. Um, I, can, I couldn't hear you, Brother Africa. Can you say, repeat the question, What, what is please? the point of significant understanding that he made the point, okay, that Racism fundamentally exists for the purpose of production and reproduction of value. That is correct. As Brother Haiki, Brother Anthony, and Brother Robert said, Brother Haiki talked about the development of racism uh, with the um, the Europeans finding uh, the Americas. And as he said, um, to be a Moor, or that was an African, or to be an Ethiopian, that was the Greek word for black, uh, was uh, honorable and distinct, uh, a sign of distinction in Europe, common working class European weren't exposed to these people other than the 400 years that the Moors occupied Europe and even Hannibal crossed the Alps uh, as conquerors. But as scholars, as intellectual uh the Africans had a profound impact on European culture because the centers of learning were in Africa. And uh, at that time, men were uh, the primary people being educated as it continued to be all the way up to the 19th and early 20th century. But these men of the 16th century studied certain things like astronomy, uh, um, shipbuilding, um, they studied certain things because we have the Arabic numerals that we use now internationally. So what happened, I think, as Brother Kim and Brother Anthony said, is that with the moving to the West, there was a need for labor. And there was also a need to uh, come up with a legitimate reason for the human massacre that occurred in the Americas to make the church believe and support the legitimacy of this massacre. And they had to do that by suggesting in the West, in the Americas, were cannibals. And they had to sell that to the Pope. And uh, at the same time, remember, the church itself was dividing. You know, it was dividing so that suddenly you not only had 
the one pope, but suddenly there was a uh, a Russian Orthodox Church and other churches. But the point is, with the development of the West, uh, the idea, long before it was grounded as an idea, the one thing that was understood immediately in the West was the need for labor because so much life was lost by the settlers also if it hadn't been for the indigenous people showing and teaching the settlers how to live and and to uh, take them into their homes, uh, they would not have survived to build uh, the United States of America, for example. And uh, race became essential because it was the one component. It was the one way that you could not identify the person's, uh, you could identify the person's easily in that their skin color was different. And uh, also the fact, not only their skin color was different, but they were so far away from their communities of origin. So they were alone in a new world with persons that came in groups, but they came in groups that uh, may have not known each other, but they were not laying in shackles in their waist below ships below in the uh, cargo of a, uh, the ship hole. They were not seeing uh, women jump overboard when their infants were thrown to sea and their mothers tried to save them by jumping overboard. They did not witness what happened when the sharks, the very animals, became so familiar with the slave ships that they followed them waiting for food, not that sharks chose to eat humans, but it was an easy dish with people just being thrown overboard. So race became an essential part of the world economy in the 16th century. We have said it and said it over and over again, and we know it, that the nation, this nation, the United States of America, this imperialist nation, was built on chattel slavery. And we're not talking about only uh, uh, Africans uh, planting cotton and picking cotton. We're talking about revenue. We're talking about the Africans being uh, the revenue representing capital, representing wealth. The person's wealth was not measured in the land they owned, but in the human property that they owned. As well as, I'm sure, gold. As well as gold and silver, that's also true. But that was not much of that going around. 
Thank you, button. Just out of we got the socket right there. We got to move along. We got only so many minutes left. And what we want to do right okay, now, we're going to bring you, in. Thank you for your understanding. We're going to bring in Brother Keevlon. I think he might have, he has something to say to have one final thought that really responds to this whole nature of this question of racist capitalism, which I want everybody to respond to as we discuss this. But right now, we go to Brother Keevlon, see what he has to um, add to the discussion as we move along. Brother Keevlon, the mic is yours. Yeah, I would listen to um, Brother Haki carefully. And I, and I agree with him because before you even get the term racism right, before the framers of the Constitution, before the land slave trade and, and Africans coming coming to the to the West, being brought here to the West, way before that, you got the Pope. Who, it's called the demarcation line. Said I I want to reduce the servitude to all infidel people, all people who don't believe in the God we believe in. He divided the part between Spain and he divided part between Portugal, right? That's capitalism. Whether you term it capitalism at the time, whether you use the word racism or not, like the sister said, you can see those people different for everybody else. So that goes back a long ways, long ways, long ways. I'm, I, I got my book, but I don't have time to look at the date, right? But it's, it's like um, 500 some BCE, some, you know, I mean, CE, the common area. So it goes back way there. So, yeah, after listening to what Haki had said, I tended to I agree a whole holiday because from the very beginning, when you said reduce the service to all infidel people, and in Spain you get this portion, in Portugal you get this portion, they know the people that they're doing this to don't look like them. Thank so that's why I, I tend to agree. Thank you, Brother Kevlon. Our last point for tonight as we close out part two, a critique of racial capitalism. And we sort of talked about it, but I think he uh, raised a particular point that really the thesis of, I guess, this whole concept of racial capitalism. Because there's always a historical argument debate on whether or not capitalism creates racism, racism creates capitalism, back and forth, and we need to resolve that critical question. But these were some points they raised, the panelists, I just would like to have your final response. The crucial aspect when you think about racial capitalism from his perspective, he pointed out that he wanted to show how your racism slash nationalism preceded capitalism emerged during the 13th, 14th century. He's saying that this question of racism pre capitalism from a European development point of view. He stated that racialization is a colonial process. Germany ideology was a racial ideology. It drove colonialization in Germany. Modern European nationalism entailed this. You don't have to, you have, you don't have a non-racial capitalist. It doesn't exist. I'll stop with those points, Brother Haki. Talk to me. Close that program. Your thought, Brother Haki. Uh, you, you, you know, yeah. But, but there was no question. The, the, the evolution of racism comes out of, you know, comes out of Europe. I mean, no one, you know, the concept of race never even existed. You know, matter of fact, scientifically speaking, we all understand there's no such thing as a race. 
and racism is is a is a, a philosophical uh, social construct. It has nothing to do with reality. Nonetheless, they use it as as, as a convenient tool in terms of justifying the uh, the exploitation of of, of African people. Uh, but one thing so I think that uh, you know when you talk about racialization as a, as not a process, it was a process because one of the things is that you know one of the, you know that one you know that as, as I think um, um, brother uh, brother Anthony alluded to or Sister Eleanor alluded to, I think when you talk about the fact that you for instance on, in the continent of Europe we had Moors who were uh, people of high standing in society, there was a recognition you know that irrespective of their skin color that they had much to offer to society. And indeed, they brought much to, to the European continent. And so therefore, there's a realization that, uh, you know, skin color has no variance. But apparently, uh, there's individuals who realize that at some point in some point in history, that uh, using this concept in terms of, you know, difference, uh, for lack of a better term, race, uh, could be uh, extremely profitable uh, for, for individuals. I think it compels a lot of them to embrace this, this question in terms of race. But I just want to clarify one thing, Brother Africa, I think it's real quickly, I, I think. Uh, but I think one of the things that pe- I want people to understand that what I'm not, I'm not arguing that people are inherently, are inherently, uh, um, inherently racist or inherently evil. That's, that's not what I'm arguing at all. So I don't want to, want, want to misinterpret what I'm saying. Okay, but what I'm saying is that I think when we, when we talk about the process in, involved in terms, of, in terms of what we call racism today, uh, we cannot deceive ourselves into believing that it wasn't a, a conscientious process, and that people, you know, what they what they secretly thought, eventually came to light, and they began to put what they thought, you know, into light. They began to put it in paper, into academia. They began to put it into practice, and so in that context, you know, we, clearly there were those, you know, who were ahead of their time, who realized that in terms of the usefulness of using racism for the for the express purpose in terms of exploitation, not just of African people. But for all people, uh, specifically uh, poor people. Uh, but having said that, Brother Africa, I'm going to clo- I'm going to conclude with that because, uh, you know, what I have to say is going to take longer than um, five minutes, and I- I'll simply conclude with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, your response to the point he wanted to show how European racism, nationalism, preceded capitalism, emerged in the 13th, 14th century. He said racialization is a colonial process. German ideology was a racial ideology. It drove colonization in Germany. Modern European nationalism um, reflects Your response, Brother Anthony? Uh, his observation is accurate. Uh, you know, because... Uh, uh, let's see. The, uh, the, uh, we 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 heard numerous times over the years how the Irish recounted that they were the first victims of colonization by England, and um, you know, so uh, so uh, 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 racism. Or to distinguish between uh, uh, the between ethnicities based on physical appearance did start in Europe. It did not exist in Africa, but it uh, did exist in Europe, and 
and later broadened uh, when uh, when uh, when uh, Europeans needed access to a cheap labor supply, and uh, and uh, and they and because of their proximity to Europe uh, to Africa, they turned to Africa as a source of cheap labor. And uh, they had to uh, justify that uh, to their uh, intellectuals, and they did that. And that's how uh, racism, as we know it today, came into being. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses, your thoughts? Brother Moses, talk to me. Do you buy into this whole idea that this whole question of racism, nationalism, preceded capitalism? Yes, no yes, it did. Yes, it did, brother. After it preceded capitalism, in that I told you, racism is an ideological and um, psychological, you know, a value system, and um, and you know, ethnicity and um, identity. Politics has been going on forever. The Bible talks about about the exploitation of humans by humans, and uh, all written history is a history of class struggle. And so, you know, um, the Jews and the Gentiles have been going at it for years. Um, this concept of Zionism, in Jesus' time, there was a concept of Zionism going on. Saul, Saul was a Zionist. You know, so racism has been going on for a long time, yes, uh, but capitalism put it in, into, on steroids, put it on steroids. And um, so, um, you know, we have to understand history and, uh, and, and, not, and not start history in, at some point uh, in, in its development stages that, that, that doesn't take in a radical uh, at the roots uh, analysis of the problem, and so you know Zionism is racism. Um, any basically, at at this point, you know it's it's hard to. Um, I'll leave it alone. I'll leave it alone. Thank you. Let's go, Sister Eleanor. Your thoughts, Sister Eleanor. Your thoughts, Sister Eleanor. Um, again, um, part of the economic and social development of the West was based on racism against the indigenous people as well as the Africans. And uh, uh, it has continued throughout the history of the United States. If you look at what happened after the abolition of slavery, there were other laws placed in, uh, put into place that could make you or I a debtor simply because I, as a landowner, claimed it. And I could force you to work off that debt. And you weren't guaranteed a minimum wage, a wage of any sort, and you owed me fifty dollars, 
You could be working for me five years to pay off that $50. So there have always been laws put into place to advance uh, this racism. And then the large planners and the owners of the mills begin to realize that to have a large group of Africans in prison once again created the chattel slavery that was needed to build the roads, to mine. Remember, prisoners were mining in this country, and their life expectancy was a matter of months, not even years. And this was much better than having to pay a wage slave. So you saw not only these uh, magistrates set up to uh, for individuals to claim debt, but you suddenly saw the development of a prison system that allowed the state to raise revenue while leasing out gang, what they call chain chain gangs of men and sometimes of women. These chain gangs were not of women. They were of men. And again, they worked in the mills. They worked in the fields. They did anywhere where there was uh, laborers needed, a number of laborers needed to complete a task. And this began post-chattel slavery and continued. And by the early 20th century, you begin to see terms and, 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 and ways that the whites, you saw it in their entertainment with the blackface entertainment where they stigmatized blacks and, um, and they did their interpretation of black behavior in blackface. And then you begin to see the imagery, the Anjumimas, all the stereotype imagery that was placed in, uh, in, into play. And you saw women having to hire themselves out by the week in homes as both the cook, the nanny, and the maid. So uh, racism has been uh, um, um, the economic foundation of the development of the United States and controlling African labor or controlling the blacks who were bought here from Africa, as we were called, um, was essential to the development of the economy. And as I said, the states themselves began to realize having these chain gangs were a great resource of revenue for the states. They would lease out these these persons to the industrialists for whatever jobs needed to be done. And uh, that continues today. We can see it with the prison industrial complex. 
and the amount of labor and the number of contracts with major corporations that employs, employs prisoners or doesn't employ them, but where prisoners work for nominal wages to produce products that we as a consumer nation consume every day. So, again, racism plays an essential role in the development of the Western economy, does and continues to. Africa remains oppressed based on colonialism, the currency that is forced to use. You know, you control the economy, the, 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 the currency, and you control the nation. So we see it across the board. So thank you so much for uh, allowing me to participate this evening, Brother Africa. And uh, I would like to close quickly with the fact that nurses are not... Can you wait till we right. come back, my sister? You can close out. Let's be All right, thank you. Know you. The You're yes, so in the wall. You know the Thank you. As you can tell, this is Alpha on the Move. We are often imitated. We are often tried to be duplicated. But just remember, they, you can't imitate and duplicate the original. We are the original. This is Alpha on the Move. We're going to take a station break, and when we come back, we will make some announcements to have our closing thoughts on part two, a critique of racial capitalism. This is Africa. On the moon. Do I-
That's right. We're walking back on the sixth day of August, 2023. It's today's date in 1945 that he dropped the atomic bomb on Himashaki and Himashini and Nakasaki. And remembering those who love their lives, we pay much respect to the families and give them their condolences and hope that we can organize ourselves so this would never repeat a particular act like this again. This is Afro on the Move. As we stated earlier, this is part two, a critique of racial capitalism. We will now be making our closing remarks, but we'd like to remind you that when you get a chance, we'd like to encourage you to register for this upcoming important program by the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. They're giving a seminar in honor of Kwame Ture on the 19th of August, starting at 12 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And they're going to be featuring, featuring the theme dealing with student youth and women becoming a lifetime revolutionary. Their mission is to do what? Their mission is to raise class struggle in Africa and the African diaspora and fight for one unified socialist Africa. For more information, check out the website and register at www.a-aprp. That's gc.org. For more information, Brother Anthony can talk a little bit more about that program. And also, we want to remind you that Africa on the Moon come on on a weekly basis at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. You can check us in by just picking up your phone and dialing 1-323-679-0841. Or you can go online on Blog Talk Radio, and you can get us coming to your home every Sunday evening. We always will speak truth to power. So support us, spread the word, and help us build our listenership. If you would like to have a copy of this program and others, you can email us at africaonthemoon2 at gmail.com. If you would like to support us and share some flowers with us, you can send your flowers to Zali, Africa Awareness Association 2 at gmail, or cash app us at Capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b. We thank you for any and all contributions. So at this point in time, we can close out our program, part two, a critique of racial capitalism with our final thoughts. And Sister Eleanor, we're going to come to you first tonight. Make your comment, and the mic is now yours. Sister Eleanor. Well, I want to thank you for an excellent show, and I definitely agree with uh, Brother Haki's analysis on race and the uh, Americas, as well as Brother Anthony and uh, Brother Moses in his analysis based on world struggle workers as uh, across the, the world and a formula for bringing about change and revolution. But in terms of dealing with the immediate facts and uh, circumstances as they exist 
Brother Haiti was able to put those forward. And I'd like to simply say that uh, in discussing race, it just brings me back to the conferences concerning the college leagues and the uh, wages, um, the fact that the players in the college leagues are in fact slaves in that the billion-dollar industry, they earn nothing, not a retirement plan, not life, health insurance, nothing. And in terms of organized labor, one of the high-wage earners in this country are nurses, but only 20% or less of the RNs with four-year degrees are represented by and less than 12% of the LPNs and the techs and others. So when these workers are complaining, they need to complain to uh, each other and bring in a union organizer, develop decent working conditions instead of victimizing the very people they're supposed to serve. The U.S. has the worst health care system in the developed world, and some people say in the world. Look at Cuba. It exports, doc- it ex- uh, exports doctors, nurses, and intellectuals, sir, and they offer them to the United States of America but we do not accept because of the embargo. Another reason the embargo needs to be lifted right now to help resolve some of the social, economic, and health crises in this country. And I want to thank you so much. I learned so much from the... uh, analysts this evening and the guests as well. I mean, very informative. I mean, education every week on Africa and the Women, and I really do appreciate it. And uh, we see more than ever why, while as Brother Anthony and Akis say, but he says untangle the metrics, and Brother Anthony says organize, and they are so correct. And I thank them for singing that message loudly. Thank you, Sister Eleanor, for your contribution to today's program. Thank you very much. We next we move to next to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, first of all, I want to acknowledge that um, someone from WPFW, I don't know who, but sent me a book called Shocking the Conscience, a reporter's account of the Civil Rights Movement. It's by Simeon Booker and his wife, Carol McKay Booker. And uh, it's a real good uh, account of the Civil Rights Movement from a reporter's standpoint because he was he was the reporter for Ebony, and he was a reporter for Jet Magazine, and also he worked for the Washington Post for some time. 
And so he's he's very knowledgeable about the civil rights movement and the different uh, struggles. And it's his personal account. Uh, it was first printed in 2013, so it's a rather interesting book. Um, my position is, the old Black Panther Party position is, you have to heighten the contradictions and confront, speak truth to power. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, you shock the conscience of the people uh, of the country, like with the Emmett Till and the displaying of the casket. And uh, you have to heighten the contradictions and confront. This is our struggle, and uh, we have to maintain our integrity. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your contribution to today's program. We now will go to our special guest for this week, Brother Cameron. We'd like to hear your final thoughts for tonight. Talk to us. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to try to finish in 30 seconds, right? I found the um, article I'm looking for that speaks to capitalism and racism, but I had the dates wrong. It's at 1400. It said, a papal bull is a document issued by the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. Portugal and Spain were were competing for territories along the African coast. Since the Pope was the arbitrator between nations, Portugal and Spain appealed to Pope Nicholas V to sell it. They claimed the reason for wanting the territories was to spread Christianity to the heathens. Nicholas issued the bull Dumb Diversas on June 18, 1452. So I had a date wrong, 1452. Authorized the King Alfonso V of Portugal to reduce the servitude all infidel people. And then they issued a bull in 1454 to extend the rights of territories they might decide to, to take in the future. So even if you don't use the word capitalism and the word racism, it's right there. you got African people that they're exploiting, and they he's dividing the land between Portugal and Spain. And thanks for um, allowing me to participate on today's program. Thank you, Brother Kevlon. Next we we'll go to Brother Hakeem, your final thoughts for the night. The mic is yours. <clears throat> yeah, well, just just to reiterate, uh, one of the things, you know, when I talk about, um, you know, the contradictions as it relates to capitalism in terms of profitability, uh, when I say that, uh, you know, if you're going to make money in the, in the in context of capitalism, one way you do it is to increase, increase, um, uh, in, increase your labor, po- labor pool. If you increase your labor pool, you have you buy more money uh, to people, which gives them more access to to buying things, which means it grows the economy, which means you can use that money for whatever. Uh, so, the, so, the, so the mistaken belief is that somehow less employment is somehow beneficial to capitalism is a misnomer. So, I think that's the point I'm trying to grab home. But more importantly, I, I, I think that one of the things that when we talk about the, the motivation of, of a human being, particularly in the context of capitalism. I think there's a recent, there's a very interesting uh, concept out, and it's called psychological upset, and it's in line with uh, Dr. Francis Crest Welding uh, Crest theory. And essentially, what they're talking about is is the insecurity of human beings. Now, uh, and under the psychological upset theory, it, it maintains that the intellect is subordinate uh, to the instincts. In other words, people are conditioned not to act in terms of intellect; they're conditioned to act in terms of instinct. And certainly, when you think in terms of capitalism, in terms of building, in terms of disguising history, destroying history, uh, educating people to believe things that are uh, er- 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 erroneous, or teaching people to hate, 
certainly capitalism is very good in terms of instituting those kinds of things. So in that context, certainly there's a certain amount of insecurity that's forming in people, which makes them amenable to all kinds of uh, nefarious kinds of theories, particular race, uh, exploitation, um, um, the 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 the, the uh, infallibility of uh, of the poor, and so forth, and so on. Uh, in any event, it's important in terms of psychological upset theory to to take into consideration because one of the things is that when we talk about this whole question around quantitative theory in American society, in which we're talking about the Federal Reserve uh, actually, you know, you know, reducing its is 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 balance, its book is balances, right? Taking all that money off its books, and in the process, what it means is there's less money in, in circulation, which means that uh, it, it creates a hardship in terms of business the building, in terms of having access to funds, you know, for, for whatever, whether to expand uh, uh, labors or to expand the operation or whatever. But nonetheless, quantitative easing is constantly being discussed um, back and forth. There are those who believe that quantitative easing is, is a must, given that inflation is still out of control, that if you don't control the the level of money in circulation, that's no way to get prices under control. There's others who say that by qualitative easing, by taking money out of the system, you create a situation where it's fundamentally you create an instability in the system. So either way you look at it, the question in terms of quantitative easing is not a solution to capitalism. The, cap- the solution to capitalism is that you have to change, you have to put money, money in the pocket of poor people, you have to invest more in social services, those kind of things that tend to put money into the economy, there's still the economy. Uh, that's, that's the cure. Uh, the question of inflation is really not not legitimate question in terms of survival capitalism because inflation on some level or another is always going to exist in the context of capitalism, particularly when you have when you have buying and, ser- buying and selling and, 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 of course, the fluctuation that comes with buying and selling because you don't know what's going to happen in terms of resources from day to day. And finally, I think also, I think it's this whole question in terms of psychological upset. I think it's important to note that when we talk about the, the, the French downgrading the U.S. credit rating, clearly it's going to have repercussions for the U.S. economy, and very, very clearly. Uh, the problem is that, you know, uh, given the fact that the U.S., a lot of its problems are self-inflicted. When you talk about a large number of people unemployed, large number, the wages, wages declining, uh, people don't have access to quality education. All those things have a negative impact on GDP, which means that the economy becomes poorer and poorer and poorer. Now, here's the problem. As the economy becomes poorer and poorer and poorer, uh, people in positions of power realize that uh, someone has to be blamed. Well, of course, in the context of capitalism, it's always the people who are least responsible for the problems who are going to be blamed. In this context, specifically, we're talking about poor people and or African people in society who are going to be blamed. Now, if people are guided by their uh, insecurities, if they're guided by their, uh, by, by, their, by their instincts, if they're conditioned to think, that certain people represent certain stereotypes, then of course, as a society, as capitalism deconstructs, as capitalism falls, then the tendency is naturally to 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 blame those people who who, who in your mind are in fact responsible because of their laziness, their aptitude, and their just downright uh, hatred of society, or as, as as part of the problem or the principal reason of the problem in terms of why the capitalist system is falling. So clearly it's a very interesting uh, concept, and so, like I say, it's in keeping with Chris, Chris Wells and, uh, and her, whole, her whole thesis around the insecurity of human beings. And certainly that makes a lot of sense in terms of the insecurity that exists in American society, given the institutions that foment uh, 
uh, insecurity in people and uh, and people who act on insecurity to embrace all kinds of uh, self-destructive kind of ideas, uh, you know, uh, based upon their understanding, you know, based on their, their level of understanding. They haven't said that, Brother Africa. I always encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix. Uh, one thing is very, very clear. When we talk about in terms of demolition or the, 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 the demarcation or, or rather the deconstruction, of the capitalist society is not it's not uh, it's not an exaggeration. This is really real. This is happening in real time. It is incumbent upon people, specifically the African community, to understand the, the, the nature of the beast. If we don't understand the nature of the beast, one of the things is sure we're, we're very clear on. People in position of power will continue to point their fingers at us as as the enemy of society. And to the extent that people embrace you know uh, working poor people or African people as the enemy of society. They're going to act on those impulses, which means that the system is very precarious for African people going into the future. We must have organization. We must have unity. With that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. You the same, Brother Haki. Thank you for your contribution to today's program. And Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for the night as we close out part two, the critique of racial capitalism. Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa, and thanks to the fellow panelists and the listening audience. Uh, I, I take this opportunity to urge people that do not belong to an organization to join an organization that is working for your people's liberation. One such organization is the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. This is our contribution to the socialist movement uh, that will ultimately eliminate racial capitalism and all other forms of capitalism and uh, imperialist exploitation that exist in the world. You can find out more about our uh, uh, objective and program by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And there you can find out about the history of our party and other ways of contacting us and about our uh, student conference we're holding in honor of Kwame Ture in two weeks. Thank you once again for having me on the program tonight. And we thank you as well, Brother Anthony, for your contributions to today's program and to our participants and our special guests and our listening audience and our supporters. We always thank you for your support and continue to tune in on Sunday, spread the word, and help hear this station. We also want to just remind you that when we talk about this program, a critique of racial capitalism, the individual who gave it that name was a brother named Frederick Robinson. And the brother who did the presentation when we talk about racial capitalism, he also wrote a book called Black Marxism. Give us a chance, check it out. And like always, I will end you with this final point from this presentation that his brother gave. 
as we talked about earlier, the article on the West and the majority world, repression versus openness, besides this point that the brother made when he talked about the importance of violence in maintaining capital under racial capitalism. He also stated that capital did not begin with money. Let me repeat that. Capital did not begin with money. You use it to exchange things. That's what you use money for. Capitalism or capital begins with the whole question of the seizure of the control of natural resources, land, water, cheap labor. It created violence to do this. So we need to understand that. It began with what? The whole creation of the seizures of land and natural resources. As you see what's going on today in terms of U.S. and West imperialism I'm trying to dominate all of these other nations, that's what it's all about to fight. If they control the natural resources and land, they control those who live on it and everything else. The fight is to have independent freedom, as Brother Malcolm said, while land you can't be free. So that's why we as Africans must understand the objective of Pan-Africanism, which is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. With that objective, Pan-Africanism will solve the problems of Africans all around the world. We must fight the powers that be. So until next time, tune in on Africa on Move. I'm your brother, Africa, and we will leave you with some music or sounds of sweet liberation. This has been Africa on the Moon.
Don't you will you come? 